And good morning, everyone, or good afternoon, or good evening, depending upon where you are on this rotating globe. Welcome to another edition, the Sunday edition, of the other side of midnight, that magical time between dusk and dawn, where we try to cover all the things that normally people haven't been thinking about for a very long time, except these days, the unthinkable has become more and more part of our present almost 24-7 reality. So tonight we're going to do an experiment. Um, I'm going to try to have a political UFO, UAP, extraterrestrial conversation. And we're going to try to encompass all the vagaries of current terrestrial domestic politics and figure a way through the labyrinth to where we, I believe, all of us want to go, which is a successful transition from a pre- to a post-disclosure world. And um, I've been meaning to ask Steve, my good friend Steve Bassett, who has been a stalwart activist in these vineyards for literally decades, around the same time frame that I've been looking at artifacts on Mars and the moon and other bodies of the solar system, realizing slowly that we were surrounded by the echoes of ancient civilizations without whom we would not be here. But for some reason, we have been cut off from this extraordinary historical fact. And we have been living in large part because it has been enforced upon us with a kind of delusional self-history that humans are only around, you know, civilization only 6,000 years old and humans are something less than 30,000. When in fact, there are extraordinary truths to be found not only in the current NASA data, of what's out there and who it may one time have belonged to, but our relationship to it. And I believe, and I think I can support that with some evidence in our discussion tonight, that this is one of the prime reasons why there has been an extraordinary long cover-up for the last 75 years. I did not realize, literally until I was writing tonight's uh, promo for the show, been 75 years before this weekend that the modern era of UFOs, UAPs, ETs, things that go bump in the night and fly around in luminous craft actually for Americans began. Because it was 75 years ago this weekend that Max Brazel went out, uh, I believe it was July 2nd, which was yesterday morning, 75 years ago yesterday morning and found after a violent New Mexico thunderstorm. And boy, do we have some buttes here in the land of enchantment. Anyway, he went out after the thunderstorm to try to round up the cattle, which, of course, you know, are easily stampeded and lots of lightning and rain and hail and the usual stuff of summer thunderstorms can really stir up a fuss. So as he's riding along trying to find the strays, he comes across one of those vistas, which are readily apparent out here if you even visit briefly. He looks out across the prairie and he sees 
between him and some of his cattle bunched up next to a bunch of hills in the distance, this incredible field of glittering confetti-like stuff all over the ground, swept into little piles by sagebrush and, and you know, weeds and, you know, the, the kind of rudimentary grass that grows here in, in the prairies. And he obviously gets down off the horse because he can't go through it without trying to figure out what it is that's going to damage the cattle. And he realizes that he's stumbled across something that's like nothing he's ever encountered before. It looks metallic. It's got lots and lots of pieces, and it's ranging from confetti size up to, you know, spars and I-beams and little broken rods and, you know, just a melange of debris, obviously artificial, obviously made of something that's very, very shiny. I mean, it looks to him like aluminum foil. So, you know, he dismounts and he picks up, you know, some pieces and he, you know, how you do with foil, it's almost like instinctual, you, you, you crumple it. And he does that and it uncrumples back meaning it snaps back into its previous configuration, regardless of what he does. He smashes it flat, he sits it on the ground, he steps on it with his boots. It always returns to its original form. Thus was the beginning of the so-called Roswell legend. 75 years ago, this weekend, the most obviously well-known story in UFO history, in American UFO history, was born. We're now three quarters of a century later, and there's still incredible uncertainty as to what actually happened that night in 1947 when that violent thunderstorm ripped apart the skies and something, something fell out of it out of the storm, out of the skies, out of the night. We're going to spend the next three hours talking about that and a whole bunch more. And what's happened now politically 75 years later, as we're poised on the edge in many different directions of finally understanding larger pieces of this extraterrestrial puzzle including how we fit in. And that's where, of course, the NASA data comes in. So let me start at the beginning. For those of you who are unfamiliar with the show, welcome, welcome. We have something called Radio with Pictures, which means if you go to the uh, URL for the other side of midnight, the other side of midnight.com, and you click on tonight's banner, which has that really interestingly stylized artistic view of the Capitol with, uh, well, it could be fireworks, they could be exploding suns, they could be dazzling spaceships entering our 3D existence from hyperspace. Make of it what you will. It just appealed to me as a kind of a otherworldly 4th of July celebration. So go to that banner, click on it. That will take you to the guest page. And right under the banner on the guest page, you will see fast links to items, Richard and Barbara. Click on my items. That will take you to that section of Radio with Pictures where I have displayed some links 
and some images, and we'll just go through them, as we have done for the last oh, several months of shows now since um, December of 2021. We're featuring some NASA news because quietly, unbeknownst to most Americans, because they're inundated with news and you can't pay attention to everything these days, I mean, really, there has been very quiet but steady progress on the Americans returning to the moon front. The giant SLS rocket, SLS stands for Space Launch System, the largest rocket that we've constructed as a nation since the retirement of the epic Saturn V back in the 1960s. This new moon rocket and its Orion spacecraft when trundled out to the pad a few weeks ago, underwent a successful uh, wet countdown demonstration test, meaning they put the rocket on the pad, they filled it with fuel and oxidizer, liquid oxygen, and then they counted down to a few seconds before T minus zero, which would be liftoff, and then they stopped the count. They drained the fuel, they checked everything, and then yesterday and uh, yesterday morning really early, ending uh, uh, yesterday afternoon, they rolled the moon rocket, the SLS booster, back into the vehicle assembly building, which is about four miles uh, down this incredible causeway. If you're ever in Florida and at the Cape, you need to walk that causeway. It's very, very humbling. Anyway, it's back in the VAB, and they're be, going to be replacing some seals, doing some other small refurbishments that uh, came to light during the test. And then the next time it goes back to the pad, which will be sometime mid to late August, or maybe the first week in September, will be when it's in progress of finally, ultimately returning manned hardware, human hardware, American hardware capable of carrying American astronauts to the moon. And that unmanned first test of the Artemis moon rocket system, the rocket plus the spacecraft, will commence, again, the launch will be sometime between mid-August and probably the first week in, in September. So if you click on that link, item number one in my items, it will give you uh, the uh, Artemis blog. You can keep track of all the daily and weekly developments, kind of follow your own countdown, because this is the spacecraft, this is the mission, which conceivably could blow the doors off the cover-up of the ancient extraterrestrial artifacts that have been waiting for millennia for mankind to return on the moon. And as the weeks progress, we'll get further and further into this. And then finally, as the mission proceeds, we'll go through step by step how the television and imaging systems on the Artemis mission can, in fact, at certain times, give us stunning views of what 99.999999% of humans tonight do not know there are the remains of an extraordinary ancient high-tech civilization all across the moon and it was photographed and seen by the astronauts from Apollo and for some reason they just kind of neglected to tell the rest of us well we'll 
unwind that story as part of this developing new chapter in this unfolding saga. Anyway, um, item number two on the same page, right below the Artemis updates, we have the link to the James Webb Space Telescope. This, of course, was launched back in uh, 2021 in December, Christmas, and we have been maintaining a kind of a running view of its progress because it had to get into orbit, it then had to reach the final destination, the so-called halo orbit out behind uh, the Earth, uh, about um, a million miles behind the Earth in the direction away from the sun. And there's this big, long orbit that it takes about six months to wander in this halo orbit around the kind of a central gravitational focus. There's a couple, three other spacecraft that uh, uh, NASA and other agencies have placed into this particular region. It's one of the semi-stable regions in the Earth-Moon system called an L2 point, L meaning uh, the French mathematician who mathematically calculated these points of stability back in the uh, 18th century named Lagrange. Anyway, the L2 point is semi-stable. You don't need a lot of fuel to kind of hang out there. You need a little, but the computers kind of monitor progress and all that. And so according to the latest prognostications, if space technology stopped developing tonight, I know this is a thought experiment, okay? Kind of, you know, hang with me. If space technology stopped developing tonight, meaning no new rockets, no new space systems, no new spacecraft, no new propulsion technologies, hint, hint. The Webb telescope, because of the accuracy of the launch in uh, December of last year, has enough onboard fuel to function. Now, get this, to function autonomously in that halo orbit for the next 20 years. 20 years. A generation. Look, Ma, no hands. Now, obviously, with entrepreneurs like Elon Musk and others, like Rocket Lab, the ability to visit the Webb telescope, even if it is orbiting kind of like a million miles behind the Earth, um, is going to become very routine, which means it will be capable of being serviced, just like Hubble in low Earth orbit. The Hubble Space Telescope only orbits like 250 to 300 miles up. Webb is a million miles away. Now, you would normally think, well, there's no way we're ever going to go there. Um, actually, there is. And Musk may be the guy developing it. So that potential <clears throat> extraordinary development of new space technology aside, this telescope, this James Webb telescope, is set to produce extraordinary images and extraordinary science and extraordinary breakthroughs for the next 20 years. Now, why can we confidently say that? Because of the redundancies on board. It's got two of almost everything, uh, which is the way NASA designs missions, particularly one this incredibly complex. So if you want to follow the progress of the Webb Space Telescope mission, Around July 12th, which is a week 
and uh, well, maybe almost two weeks from now, they're going to be downlinking the first data taken of deep space. And we are promised images that will absolutely curl your toes or knock your socks off or any one of a number of other cliches for scientific astonishment. So kind of stay tuned for that. Now, the backdrop to our extraterrestrial conversation on this July 4th weekend, on the 246th anniversary of the birth of the United States, is this recent article in um, Newsweek and other mainstream publications coming off a paper published by NASA under the aegis of the National Academy of Sciences back in January. This is kind of how slow the official chain of checks and balances kind of works in, in Washington. They, they kind of put all this stuff together in a paper in January. We're only learning about it now, you know, six months later. The Martian rover Curiosity, about 10 years ago, drilled some samples in a place called Yellowknife, which was at the base of this uh, three-mile-high mountain that they've been climbing in the center of this 100-mile-wide feature on on Mars called uh, Gale Crater. And the drilling was done to see if water had ever pooled and flowed in the lowest levels of the crater floor. Water means life. Where there's water and life, there are organics. Where there are organics, there are signatures that tell you you're looking at biology, even if you can't see seal, seals, cells rather. What am I mean by seals? Must have seals on the brain. Cells and, uh, you know, forms and morphologies and things like that. So what Curiosity did in this drilling now 10 years ago is they analyzed the uh, composition of the muds, the ancient fossilized muds that they were drilling into. And the results of those analyses indicated that carbon was mysteriously depleted of certain common isotopes that are found ordinarily in nature in carbon deposits that have not been the product of biological systems. In other words, non-life geological processes. For some reason, and there are theories, and I have my own, uh, life seems to want to really uptake carbon-12, which is an isotope, and it kind of doesn't like carbon-13, even though carbon-13 and carbon-12 are identical chemically, and the only difference is one extra neutron, uh, which raises the atomic number from 12 to 13. It's that extra mass that in the mainstream models means that uh, it's slightly less adaptable to absorption and incorporation into uh, chemistry and biochemistry. So there's this selection among living organisms for what's called carbon-12 as opposed to carbon-13. So on Earth, if you encounter a deposit in an ancient rock, which is depleted in carbon-13 and has a lot of carbon-12, we're talking now you know, maybe 100 parts per million, something like that. Not a lot, but easily discernible with current technology. 
it means more than likely, like 99.99% of the time, you're dealing with an ancient reservoir of formerly living organisms that were only, the only echo of their former existence is now the carbon signature, the carbon 12 that they left behind when they decayed. Well, that's exactly last uh, 10 years ago what Curiosity found on Mars. We have been looking for decades for the signature of life. NASA has had this mantra, you know, follow the water. They've got these incredibly now two sophisticated rovers, Curiosity and Gale, and Perseverance over Jezero, which is like a thousand miles away in the north and the other hemisphere. And the the goal has been to find the signature, the organic signature, the carbon isotopic signature indicating once living systems on Mars. Well, they found it. And it was it's been published in this mainstream paper, authorized, peer reviewed, vetted, sanctified, okayed, given the green light, whatever cliche you want, by the National Academy of Sciences, which is probably the most prestigious scientific academy on the planet, the Russian Academy and the French Academy notwithstanding. So under a situation where on Earth, if these results had been discovered and then published, 90% of scientists would say, oh my God, life used to exist in this very, very ancient rock, you know, be it 500 million, a billion, two billion years old. But because the discovery was made on Mars, the game, for some reason, is different. And as I did last night, um, I, I, I kind of blame Carl Sagan, because my old colleague and friend Carl Sagan, who was a very unique individual, in a world of unique individuals, Carl was one of a kind. I can I can attest to that, having spent you know some weekends at his place there in Cornell. With him and Linda, Carl was unique. Anyway, he coined this phrase decades ago, which frankly I think has been the bugaboo of science. I think it set real science back, if not years, maybe even decades. Because what Carl said in a burst of, you know, how Carl used to be, um, he said, if, um, if science is to be taken seriously, extraordinary claims demand extraordinary evidence, which of course is a dagger to the heart of science because science is not supposed to even be cognizant or aware or acknowledge that one discovery is more important, more exciting, more tantalizing, more extraordinary than the other. Science is supposed to be objective where you weigh numbers and facts and accumulated evidence and You're not really concerned with outcomes. You're just concerned with the process of verifying that what you've got is real data, truth, in other words, verifiable truth. Boy, is that a hard commodity to come by these days. And so by introducing the idea that some claims of discovery are more extraordinary than others. I mean, I really tackled this head on back when Carl was very much with us uh, in a feature story that I uh, uh, wrote or was written about me 
in Omni Magazine. And I, you know, I, I tried to get him into a debate to kind of, you know, come full circle and, and answer the question, why would you introduce a kind of a slippery, gooey, squishy, psychological term into what should be just objective science looking at numbers? And he never would. He would never really discuss in public where he got this idea. But what it's done is to weight the scales so that certain scientific discoveries are innately so fraught with implications, political, religious, um, cultural, sometimes even racial, that the amount of evidence required to overcome people's uh, innate conservatism in accepting the new data, the new paradigm, uh, is well nigh to overwhelming. And one of those areas has been the idea that we are not alone. And scientists who are working in the system, this is mainstream science, they are very cognizant of, of Sagan's dictum. And so the more extraordinary the potential social impact of a discovery, the more cautious, the more conservative, the more timid, the more afraid. Let's, let's hit it on the head. Scientists are to come out resolutely and say, okay, we've discovered this. They'll use words like the probability of and the coincidence factor mitigating. And the in other words, it's, it's what I call Emily Dickinsonian classic terminology. Tell all the truth, but tell it slant. Don't hit it right on the head. Don't ever sound positive because if you're tripped up, oh, my God, the, you know, the fear of, of God and country and your career. So this announcement of the detection of sizable deposits of carbon-12 with really incredible depletion of carbon-13, which on Earth would be automatically assumed by almost every scientist – Okay, there used to be a bunch of microorganisms hanging out there and eating happily, and when they all died, they left the carbon behind. That reasoning, which would be almost automatic now, after decades of this kind of work here on Earth, in paleontology, in archaeology, in, in you know some of the more, shall we say, soft scientists that did not used to have quantifiable numbers, that same reasoning, when transposed so the results of the Curiosity mission are totally different because they snuck up on the idea that maybe this could be due to biology or maybe it's something really unique to Mars that's chemical. It might even be due to interplanetary slash interstellar dust clouds, which they think are depleted in carbon-13 and enriched in carbon-12 by some as yet unknown natural process. Um, I have answers for that too, if you're interested. Anyway, bottom line, I think tonight we're living in AD. That BC was before the detection of this carbon, AD is after detection. But you will not get any scientists to commit tonight that NASA has found evidence of ancient life on Mars. The only place you're going to hear that discussion and the implications thereof is right here. Oh, one final thing before we go to break at the bottom of the hour. 
Elon Musk, mentioned him earlier, um, is an atheist. He's not a Catholic. He's not a Baptist. He's not a <clears throat> Presbyterian. He's not a Seventh-day Adventist. He's not a Buddhist. He is an atheist. <clears throat> so suddenly in the last day or so, he and his family, all except one, one uh, uh, now daughter, uh, showed up in a one-on-one -on -one visit with Pope Francis. And my question, and the question on a lot of minds is, why? Why is Elon Musk visiting Pope Francis? Anyway, on this July 4th weekend, I thought we would go out at the end of the first break with this. This is a blast from the past. For those of you old enough to remember, this is a gal named Kate Smith, and this is God Bless America on this 4th of July extraterrestrial weekend. Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month. 33 cents a day. Support the broadcaster to provide you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com.
And welcome back, everyone, to the other side of midnight on this July 4th weekend, 2022, 246 years after the founding of the United States, an extraordinary experiment now poised at the edge of something, something almost existential. And so we're going to talk about tonight, and we're going to talk about how the extraterrestrial presence, as my friend Steve often refers to it, may in fact be an antidote to so many things that seem to ail our current society. We shall tackle them one by one and try to see if any of them fit to perpetuate this experiment called America. It makes you think of a lot of things. We're going to be in this yet, Mom. Stephen Bassett is a a very interesting guy. I've known Stephen for, good grief, how long have I known Stephen? It's obviously been decades. He's been as dedicated to his pursuit of extraterrestrials as I have been. And um, we have actually taken some very different paths, very different. He is the, he's certainly a political activist, a disclosure advocate, and the executive director of a group he formed many decades ago, back in 1996, called the Paradigm Research Group to end the government-imposed embargo on the truth behind extraterrestrial-related phenomena. He has spoken to audiences around the world about the implications of disclosure, the formal confirmation by heads of state of an extraterrestrial presence engaging the human race, and he has lectured around the world on the political implications of the current UAP ET phenomena and has given over 1,200 radio and TV interviews in that same period of time. His uh, advocacy work and PRGs has been extensively covered by all kinds of national international media, including CNN, Fox, MSNBC, The Washington Post, and The New York Times. And without further ado, welcome back to The Other Side of Midnight, Steve. Yes, Richard. Good to be with you again, as always. I, wa- I wanted to ask this question, and, and we will, we'll, I'm going to introduce Barbara in a moment, but I want to get this question on the record first. Why have you been this persistent, as I have been, in pursuing this separate path? What do you envision is the goal, the upside of confirming that our interrelationship with denizens of the galaxy is deep and long and ancient and, in fact, determinative of the human race itself. Why have you been so persistent? Well, there's two questions there. Why have I been persistent and what do I see as the outcome of uh, achieving our fundamental goal of disclosure? These are are questions I can do a couple hours on each. You know that, Richard, but let me be, be brief. Um, well, we, we have three yeah. hours. We don't have to do it all in you know, two minutes. Oh, really? Oh, okay. Um, first of all, you, you have to do something with your life. I mean, that's kind of what you have to do. I mean, for some people, it's very straightforward. Uh, for others, it's not so straightforward. But you have to do something with your life. And um, I am a person that is, has always pretty much been uh, looking at meaning 
purpose, that kind of thing, and not just say something simple like accumulating money. Though I kind of wish I could have done both. But the point is, you've got to do something in your life. And I made a decision in 1995, the winter of 95, that what I wanted to do with my life, it took me a long time to get to the point where I could make a decision like that. Prior to that, I was very confused. Let's just leave it at that. And I decided that this issue was had come of age and that if I was going to choose a path, this could be a quite extraordinary and interesting path to take. Uh, uh, and uh, secondly, I had a bit of money and I realized I don't need to go get a job to do this because there aren't any anyway, but I could volunteer. Wait, 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 wait. You at one time had money? <laughs> I had a little money at that time. It wasn't a lot. <laughs> no, I assure you it. You know, I, uh, it wasn't enough to, 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 to get excited about, but this, this business so, does not make money. No way. It, yeah. Uh, but, uh, this was 95 and there were a couple of things that I did back then. I'd read a couple of books. I had read your book about, oh, maybe a year and a half prior to that. Uh, but in 95, I read Mac's book, Abduction. This was a key thing for me. It was, uh, the, the, the trigger that really, uh, uh, gave me the the, uh, the opportunity to make the decision, and so that affected me. Then I said, "Okay, I really think that's what I want to do." And uh, I don't know if I've told the story before, but uh, then I said, "Okay, well, I've never been to a conference. I, I should go to one of these conferences. Never been to one." And you there mean, was one. You, wait, you mean UFO conference? Yeah, you know how I hate UFO, but yeah, that's what they were called. UFO. I conference. love I, UFO. I know you do, but it's got like I love so, steampunk and other incredible shrines of our history. It's never going to go away. It'll just take on a whole new meaning. So, I, go ahead. I, I'm dedicated to killing it and burying it somewhere in the backyard. But look, this was a 95. There was a conference in, uh, in uh, Los Angeles at LAX. Uh, I believe it was the Hilton Airport, but it was down there. And I said, well, I've never been to a they, conference. Let me go, go down. Hilton, yes, yes. No, well, yeah. Okay, so I went to my first UFO conference as a way of just sort of seeing if if this was something I wanted to do. And uh, oh, well, guess what? Out of all the gin joints, you know, Casablanca, why did you pick the castigated Paul of UFOs? Come on, what what Hmm. what told you? It some little voice whispered in your ear, "This is the horse to bet on." Uh, The fact is that for me, it wasn't about UFOs. Uh, it was about ETs. When I was when I was 15 years old, in, in my teens, and let's say 15, for instance, uh, I, I was uh, I was not religious. I was essentially, I guess you'd say, an atheist. I simply wasn't religious. I didn't have any political biases, um, and I was just a military brat leading a very basic middle class life. But I but I loved science fiction, and then I started seeing the occasional article about this phenomenon, which I would read. Right. Naturally, if you, if you love science fiction, you're going to pick mm-hmm. up on that. And, I, and there, were, there were a number of them because this issue has been covered all the way back into the 40s by the media to a point. Uh, it, it, there are thousands of articles. But of particular note, the age of 15, I read the Look magazine article about Betty and Barney Hill. And it's simple. Oh. I read it. I applied simple logic to it, little common sense and said, oh, they had an encounter with extraterrestrials. Uh, and other things I read concluded the same thing. In other words, based on simple common sense, when I was a teenager, it was quite clear to me that there was this extraterrestrial phenomena, uh, period. Now, 
I wasn't involved. I hadn't done any research, but I'm simply reading what the press is writing. Okay, so I didn't do anything about it. It was like cool, but hey, I'm, I'm a kid. I got a lot of things on my plate. I got a lot to worry about. And so, so I just but didn't you follow must, it. You must have read John Fuller's classic Interrupted Journey, which was riveting about Betty and Barney's experience. As a ch- I read it later, but as a, as a kid, I was just seeing stuff in the news or maybe on TV uh, and then reading lots of Heinlein and Asimov. Uh, so again, I, I never got into the issue, uh, but from the beginning, it was never about UFO. There's extraterrestrials here, and I knew that. But so what? So when I'm when I'm in 1995, as I'm starting to consider possibilities, when I uh, considered this issue, it wasn't wow. I want to get involved in extra UFOs. Oh God, no. I mean, I, if I did, I could have maybe joined MUFON and gone out and studied some cases. No. I wanted to get involved in it because the, the, the extraterrestrial issue was coming of age. This was confirmed to me by, by Max's work and the fact that he had the guts to write uh, abduction, a, a human encounter with aliens, and he was a Harvard, uh, the head of the Harvard psychology at the uh, Cambridge psychology department. He was a Pulitzer Prize winner. So, and, then, and, and, and so that's, so I saw this thing coming of age and getting resolved and getting resolved. <laughs> oh, how naive we were. Oh, my oh, God. Oh, yeah, well, well uh, but still, it was, resolution for me in 95 wasn't, oh, we're going to prove UFOs are real. I mean, that, to me, that, that, that whole phrase was ridiculous. We were going to confirm somehow the ET reality. So anyway, in part of my decision-making process, I went down to this conference called, I think it was UFO West or something, down in L.A. I was in San Luis Obispo, so it wasn't a particularly long drive. Well, guess who was speaking at that conference? Hmm. Guy named Hoagland, if I recall. <laughs> and so I had read your book, Volume of Mars, and so I definitely wanted to go to your lecture. So I went to your lecture, and it was, it was pretty cool. It was very interesting. You're always interesting. And then afterwards, you hung around, and I, I, I kind of hung around too. And it was this big round table there. And you I remember we were in this like cafeteria with the tablecloths, and I was sitting, and you just sat down, and we started talking. And here we are. Well, there were others there. There, there was three or four other people there. They, they had, they had you know, your fans. Your fans were, were, <laughs> were, were hanging with you to, to, to listen uh, and sit at your feet. And I sat down. Okay. <laughs> now, because I'd read your book, it was cool. So I sat down and I and I made a few comments, uh, and uh, along with the others, uh, and I also had a pad with me too. I always carried a valise back then, and so I make a couple of notes. And at some point, you looked at me, and you said something along the lines of, "What are you a journalist? Or do you look really serious or interested in this?" And then we had a kind of exchange. Uh, and what was important about that moment, uh, and I think I've told you this before, Dick, but it was a thousand years ago, is that whether you knew it or not, you in that moment made me feel like, hey, welcome to the party. Uh, yeah, uh, you get, like, get into this. Uh, sure, you look like a serious person, a sparse guy. Get into this. You're welcome to be part of this. That, that was not trivial, and I noted that. Now, where it got interesting <laughs> – is that you had another presentation. I'm pretty sure this happened at that time. I may be confusing it, but I think you then had another presentation that evening. Yeah, it was then, all the way back in 1995. And this was like a, you know, what they call, you know, you have your lecture and then you've got your workshop kind of thing. Anyway, yeah, yeah. So I attended this 
And I'm feeling emboldened because we had this discussion. And so, and it was in an outdoor, it was kind of like a tent set up, uh, probably at capacity of about 150, 200. And so I attended this. And the first thing I noticed was the pet was packed. There was not a place to sit. It was absolutely packed. And then you, I noticed you were having a problem with your uh, slide situation. Your automatic hand slide thingy wasn't working. And so I said, look, I will, I'll move the slides for you. Mm-hmm. And you said, great. And so I pulled up a chair next to the machine. And then every time you gave me the cue, I popped the slide. And so on my first engagement of this issue in that way, I'm helping the great Richard Hoagland in his slide <laughs> presentation, right? Oh. So now I'm really in, right? So I'm getting sucked in. And then the third thing I noticed, which I, and, I'm, and I'll stop there, is that, and this is not going to shock anybody, you went on for, I think, three hours, <laughs> three <laughs> solid hours. And I'm, and, I'm, and I'm cool. I'm cool because I'm running the slide machine. You can go as long as you want. I'm feeling really cool. But the thing I noticed, not a single person left that, that outdoor setting with the tent thing over it or whatever the hell. They stayed there for three solid hours. They didn't even go to the bathroom. I was impressed by that. All right. And so I, I went back up to San Luis Obispo and considered my options. And the sum of it all was that I decided this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to volunteer. If I can volunteer, I'm going to get involved that way. And I got really lucky because in the back of Mac's book, Abduction, was the uh, address and phone number for Peer, his, his, his program for extraordinary experience, work, uh, experience uh, research, which he set up in Cambridge, not far from the Cambridge Hospital, where he was the head of uh, psychology. And I, I don't know, I guess I was imbued with the, with the little, little passion or something, or naivete, and I simply called him up, and I was able to persuade the uh, the general manager, the manager of his operation, a, a wonderful woman by the name of Karen Wesolowski, that to agree to let me come and just volunteer as a development person because I had a lot of business, had some business background, you know, business consulting, that kind of stuff. And they, they, you know, you could always use development, and that was it. And so I said, okay. Uh, I said, wow, what a great door to go through. And so I sold everything off, cleared everything off, emptied my bank account, packed up my car, it was an RX-7, and proceeded to drive across country to, uh, to interact with, uh, to join up with Peer. And uh, on the way, I stopped in Washington, uh, where I have family, and then I stopped in Weehawken, where you were staying. Yes, and, yes. And I told you, I am, uh, uh, yeah, I'm going, I'm, going, I'm going up there. There's Steve. And you were irritated because prior to my actually arriving there, right, sometime between the time I, 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 I encounter you at the, the conference in the UFO conference in Los Angeles and my trip left, I had called you and talked about maybe being an assistant to you, meaning, or at least sometime earlier, before I made the decision with the, the institute, uh, the peer, I talked about being assistant and it wasn't, it wasn't the right time or whatever but you know you appreciated the offer and so fine so we talked about that but then i came through on my way to boston and to tell you that while i'm going up to volunteer for peer and you were irritated because wait a minute i thought you were going to volunteer for me mm-hmm. right what what happened to that <laughs> and so we had a nice nice encounter there I, I don't know i stayed for i think just a day and then i headed up and i arrived in boston on uh 
January 26th to set up a little office and work for Peer. And that is that is how it began. Now, again, understand, I'm, I'm starting off by volunteering for a Pulitzer Prize winning Harvard professor who is who has entered this field with great uh, courage and risk. And the way he entered it was with the abduction phenomena. So right away, we're not talking UFOs. We're talking ETs in the bedroom. All right. Yeah. And yeah. so and, and from that moment on, I mean, it, it fit perfectly into where I was at. But uh, the ultimate decision that set me on my path to today was in my last few weeks up there because I, I was a volunteer. It was not a permanent deal. And I, it was time to move on. I, I had the, I had this, this kind of epiphany that just downloaded into my head. What are you going to do next? And and I and I said, look, uh, it's clear, ever, even more clear after being in fear for those five months, that the problem is not it's not science. It's not, it's evidence. not science. No. no. So I, what's the problem? I have, I have the same incredible naivete. The problem with artifacts in the solar system has nothing to do with science. It's all about the politics. Politics. And so therefore, if that's the problem, if that's why we haven't been living in a quote, and I didn't use that term then, post-disclosure world, is because of, of a political decision by the United States government for national security reasons that they would, they would I eventually called it embargo, they would embargo this issue for national security. And therefore, until you solve, solve that political issue, you're never going to get the goods from the government, and you can pile evidence up and spend all your extra money or your social security checks researching and writing books and going out and cases you could you could work your fingers to the bone for MUFON. It isn't going to matter. And so I said, look, I, that's what I'm going to do. And then I had the second epiphany. Nobody's ever registered as a lobbyist on this issue. Nobody was mm. stupid enough to do that. <laughs> so if I, if I rushed down to Washington, and I did, I, I didn't waste any time, I immediately create a name and immediately file as the lobbyist. I'll be the first person to ever do it. And that could be a pretty good way to start, a good hook. And I was right. I registered as a lobbyist, and after a number of months, the Washington Post found out about it and said, hmm, we need to talk to this guy. They sent out a reporter. Did a pretty good article, very substantial, long article with a massive photo. It was on the cover, I mean, the front page of the business section, which you can find on my website if you go to the media coverage. Worst photo ever taken of me, without question. <laughs> I mean, it's just the worst photo. Well, you had a tad more hair then. Didn't matter. The hair didn't help. It was an awful photo. <laughs> and I was holding up, but in this photo, I'm holding up John Mack's book. Uh, and I say the book, the symposium uh, record of his symposium in Harvard, uh, at, at uh, MIT in 1992, the one he put on with Pritchard, uh, a symposium on alien, I think, discussion, I forget. I should know that. And so that, that's the beginning, okay? And so that's what gets me going. Now, what kept me going, uh, you know, for 26 years? Uh, uh, well, first of all, the, the, a quarter once you, of a century. Yeah, yeah. Once you enter this field, particularly late in life, what you discover is other options immediately fade away very quickly, right? <laughs> so it's like it, it's a built-in lock. You're locked in, right? Here, you've taken this path. It better be the right one because other paths are literally disappearing uh, on a daily basis. But to, to answer the question as succinctly as possible, every day that I was involved, 
every everything I learn, uh, I begin to come to understand something very significant that one, the extraterrestrial presence was the most important thing the human race is ever going to have to ultimately deal with. Two, political implications of it are enormous. Three, the truth embargo that the government imposed has had significant consequences, not many of which were very negative. All right. And then four, that when you when you look at it long enough, you also you can't you can't ignore a lot of collateral aspects of the national security state or what I used to call the secret empire. And you begin to realize that the, the, the nuclear arms race very likely also connected with the ET reality, which the government's known about since 46 latest, seven latest, has helped to generate this massive intelligence empire uh, and also encourage very substantial abuses of secrecy, which was undermining and, and, and also breaking our bank, and in other words, bankrupting us and undermining trusting government that you, when you put that all together, this issue is at the center of the fate of the United States and probably the globe in the 20th century, turns out it's going to be into the 21st century, and therefore it's the biggest issue in the world, and I'm the only lobbyist, and I'm going, wow, that's great, and so my passion for it grew because I knew that it had the potential to solve uh, or reverse uh, some uh, bad courses we've taken uh, more than anything else, and the number one thing that was on my mind was the nuclear arms race. Uh, and then the number two thing was the the addiction to war that the human race has. So it's now in, well, in its 10,000th year mm. uh, that these two things alone are tied into this somehow and that resolving the ET issue and getting disclosure might be the way to get out from under this 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 craziness that we well, we, we have not been able to give up. You know that Sagan had this standard line. I mean, I, I, I probably came off as being very critical of Carl. Carl was brilliant. Carl was imaginative. Carl could think outside the box. And I got the feeling in the later years that he was constrained by forces around him. And when he began to break out of those uh, weird things happened. One of the things that he, he talked about was that if we contacted ETs, the most important question and this was this, the strict paradigm that we're us and they are them and never the twain shall meet. Total mm -hmm. strangers. My model, of course, is that a lot of ETs are relatives and you know what happens with relatives and families. But anyway, mm -hmm. his model was strangers. He said the most important thing to ask them, if we ever could, was how did you survive your nuclear crisis? Because he saw the same thing mm -hmm. that you saw and I see, which is now, tonight, we've got a guy, a madman in Moscow named Putin, and every other week he's waving the nuclear you know, a weapons uh, banner, and we are literally moments away from catastrophe based on the whim of one guy. That is no position for humanity to be in. Um, okay. Four minutes to the top of the hour. I want to bring in Barbara, and then we'll go through the same drill with how she got involved in this. Barbara okay. Honecker has served in high-level government positions, including White House Policy Analyst, Special Assistant to the President of the United States for Domestic Policy, Director of the Attorney General's Law Review at the Department of Justice, 
And for more than a decade, she was senior military affairs journalist at the Naval Postgraduate School, the premier science, technology, and national security affairs graduate research university of the Department of Defense. So without further ado, Barbara Honiger, come on down. Hello, Richard. Hello. Well, how did you wind up in this party? What got you interested in extraterrestrials, UFOs, and things that are deeply important to ultimately who we all are? Well, I hope I have more than three minutes to answer. Oh, of course. Of course, you just started, and we'll, we will continue on the other side of the break. Okay. Well, um, I didn't expect this show to be so uh, focused on the extraterrestrial question. Um, the way you had presented it to me, I thought we were going to be talking more terrestrial geopolitics, which is where I'd like to focus. Um, uh, you know, when I get into the meat of my of what I want to say. Uh, but to answer your question, how did I get, or, or am I, a better question, am I interested in this question? Yes, I am. Uh, from a different perspective, I believe, from either of you. And that, to me, the, the one place where I definitely overlap with Steve, and I really appreciated the candor of of what he just went through. Uh, there was a lot in that bio uh, summary that, that I didn't know and I appreciate greatly. Um, but where I do overlap a, a thousand percent uh, is I believe you started this program with Roswell. And to me, what matters about Roswell is both its chronological, um, almost uh, chronological identity uh, and its physical proximity to where our bombers uh, were were based that dropped the bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Yeah, I'll tell you what, let's hold uh, it there. Yeah. At the top of the hour, when we come back, we will have the rest of the story, as Paul Harvey used to say. My okay. guest this morning for the first two hours, Steve Bassett and Barbara Honiger. One got into politics through the Martian doorway and then the ET perspective. The other was a senior policy analyst in a very male-oriented White House under President Ronald Reagan. And in the background, on this 4th of July weekend, the U.S. Navy band singing America the Beautiful. Here on the other side of midnight, my name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. Midnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. 
Support the broadcast and don't miss another groundbreaking conversation. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. And welcome back, everyone, on this Sunday night, July 3rd, before the big holiday, 246-year anniversary of the birth of this unique experiment, which tonight is in real existential danger. And before I finish, uh, Barbara, we are going to be getting into terrestrial politics because this is an experiment. I think what we're undergoing is in part the reason that we're having this existential crisis because nothing bigger could deter us from the ultimate revelation that our relationship to whoever is out there, whatever is out there, whatever extraordinary impact on our very genesis and history is currently trying somehow to muddy the waters so disclosure never comes. You're on the other side of midnight. My guests this morning are Steve Bassett and Barbara Honiger, and the U.S. Navy band just finished. So, Barbara, back to you. (laughs) Okay. Can you hear me all right? Bye-bye. I'm sorry, what? Five-bye. It's an old uh, Air Force expression, meaning five-by-five, meaning loud and clear. Okay, I was in the Navy, not the Air Force. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Well, um, back to, to how I am interested in anything to do with uh, alternative experience, I think is a better way of thinking about it, because I think in much broader terms than just extraterrestrials or UAPs or UFOs or poltergeists. So the bottom line is, I've lived this all my life from the time I was a small girl. Um, by the way, my grandfather was a, a water diviner and actually he could divine for anything he set his mind to. And whenever the, um, this is my maternal grandfather, uh, Shirley Benedict of California, central San Joaquin Valley. And whenever the, uh, the army Corps of engineers gave up trying to find water, uh, someplace, wherever in the country, they would come to my grandfather and he would find it for them. Um, and that's the way my my family on my mother's side gained the um, the, the the base wealth. Uh, again, like Steve Bassett, not a huge amount, but some money. 
um, to enable us to be comfortably middle class um, was because my maternal grandfather uh, went out at night uh, in the San Joaquin Valley and especially the Kettleman Hills uh, in the dark of night uh, with usually uh, a little high school kid who would carry his wooden stakes with him and he would have his divining rod and the divine wherever the divining rod went down with considerable force he would have his assistant uh, put a stake and as the morning light came the uh, stakes would be on the two sides of an underground stream or river and so of course just before the uh the the place where the stakes came closest together my grandfather would <laughs> kind of mysteriously to the property owner the landowner he would uh offer to buy up the mineral rights in just that little location oh my which is where he would of course put a well he would get well rights because he had the water rights and so that was my uh that was my maternal grandfather and he died very precipitously of a heart attack mm. just before my mother uh, had me, my parents' first child. So I've always been connected to this grandfather, even though I never met him. If I were to choose one person from my entire family, my biological family, uh, that probably has had the most influence upon the direction of my life in this area, it was my maternal grandfather. Um, it's almost as if he's a, a constant presence with me. And so from the time I was a small girl, and I mean a little girl, I had experiences that were completely inexplicable uh, from your normal scientific perspective. You could call them miracles if you were a, you know, establishment religious person, which I'm not. I was, in fact, uh, kicked out of the Episcopal Church at age six. <laughs> No, seriously. What for, did you do? Well, in my in my little uh, class, you know, my uh, my Sunday school class, where the kids were separated from the adults for the first part of the service, um, we were supposed to remember. Uh, we she would give us homework, our teacher, and uh, so our homework for this one this one week was to remember the 23rd Psalm. Now, for kids who are four, five, and six, at most seven years old, that's a lot to do. And um, so I went home. I was always very serious about pre pleasing my teachers. You know, I was always, always uh, oriented towards adults and not my peers ever. Um, <clears throat> and so I had my mother uh, uh, drill me. And so the next Sunday, when the Sunday school class opened, the uh, teacher, it was a woman, um, she said, okay, well, uh, let's uh, go around the table, and if you could recite the 23rd Psalm. And, of course, I was the only child who could, who not only recited the whole thing, let alone maybe one or two lines, four at the most by the other, about, about a dozen children. So at the end of this, I will never forget it. We were all sitting in this little low blonde wood table and little blonde wood chairs. And the Sunday school teacher, after she went around the table, she, she was standing above us and she puffed herself up and she said, well, 
all of you other children now know that you could have remembered the 23rd song because Barbie did it. I will deal with you later, but I'm now going to reward Barbie, and she's now going to tell us what Jesus Christ means to her. Mm. Well, of course, at age, I don't know, five or whatever, I have no idea. <laughs> and uh, But I, I straightened my back, and I told my truth, which I always have, uh, despite the consequences, and they've been serious in my life. Uh, but I always tell the truth, because I understand it at the time. And I said, well, whoever this Jesus Christ person is, I'm sure he was a very nice man, but my daddy is better. <laughs> and that was it. I mean, um, the whole church was scandalized. It was an Episcopal church in Hanford, California, and I was kicked out at age five or six. <laughs> right? So, so... That was my experience with organized religion, um, but it didn't matter because my experience has been from the time I was a little child that the whole universe, it feels like the whole universe interacts with me. So you can think of, uh, you know, an ET experience or a UFO experience, and I have very close friends who've had them big time. And they've told me about them. I've had absolutely no personal experience with any of that. But I have had phenomenal synchronicities and phenomenal personal experience and guidance that has resulted in serious changes in the world um, when I follow my guidance. So I've lived it. Let's put it that way. Um, Now back to Roswell. I was born only about three months after Roswell, and I wasn't aware of it for many, many years, but when I did become aware of it, what absolutely stood out for me, and again, this is a guidance, which of course is borne out by the facts, especially anyone who who wants to really get into it, you got to read a book called UFOs and Nukes, of course, Mm. a very, very important book. probably the most important one in the field that makes the explicit connection between the appearance of so-called UAPs, UFOs, orbs, ball lightning, whatever you want to call them, whatever they really are, and we don't really know. Um, My guidance tells me that, that the underlying phenomenon is what we would call the orbs. And that they can manifest their appearance and interaction with the human mind or brain any way they like. Um, And that some people experience them, other people experience them as UFO interactions, uh, whatever. Uh, But anyway, that is simply a hypothesis. But what I do know is my life experience. And my guidance told me loud and clear that there was a direct relationship between Roswell and everything that happened after and the uh, first uh, detonations of nuclear weapons on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And I also believe, and have been on your show before, uh, that there is a direct connection to the Nazis, in particular Adolf Hitler. Um, And as you know, uh, the Project Paperclip 
people, there was a group of them right close to Roswell. That's not a coincidence either. Okay. Um, so I guess that answers that question. But what really, when we when we get into uh, when we get into the more terrestrial geopolitics and what's happening now, which may not be that part of the conversation you want to have right now, but I will tease you <laughs> because where I believe important overlap is to what has just happened in the United States and the so-called uh, abduction phenomenon. And if you link the abduction phenomenon to UAPs and UFOs, which some people think there's a connection, others don't. But if you do, but regardless to the abduction phenomenon, there's just no question. I know Jacques Vallée. And Jacques Vallée's work was the very first that I read in the field. Uh, and there's there's just no question in my mind, but that this phenomenon has been um, basically guiding what we call human evolution for an extremely long time. Okay. Like mm. interacting, interacting with human DNA. Well, what does that have to do with what's just happened in the United States? And it's not all I want to talk about of what's happening in the United States because it's profound. And I've got very experience-based ideas about it. But for now, I just want to say, with this abortion issue, with what just happened, with the balkanization of this fundamental right to bodily autonomy being denied to over half of the states of the United States in the very near future, if there is an interaction with these, whoever are doing the abductions, that they are changing the human DNA. It really matters for um, for women, especially in the United States and countries that deny the right to end a pregnancy. It really matters to determine a way to know if whatever's in the womb is human or not. Say that again. It matters. Look, if you believe that the abduction phenomenon has been manipulating human DNA for probably maybe millions of years, if not certainly hundreds of thousands, as I do, from reading the literature, then you have to assume that it's still going on. And so you have to assume that at some point, if it hasn't happened already, that they, whoever they are, or whatever it is, the phenomenon that causes these abductions and this DNA manipulation, that at some point it's not going to be us in the womb. Mm. Well, that's one. Whether those women who are bearing whatever that is have a right to end that pregnancy. Oh, no, that's an interesting angle. Yes, it is. Um, all right, let's hold let's because I want to come back to Steve. Um, Steve, as you obviously are well aware, uh, American politics are going to hell in the handbasket at warp nine. We have a court which has suddenly made such abrupt, radical changes in conventionality, in people's perception of rights, of norms, of stability in in so many different areas. 
and it's all been telescoped within the last literally few days, although it was telegraphed, you know, for months and maybe years ahead of time. In this political environment, which is polarized, uh, where people can't even discuss calmly uh, certain personages in uh, uh, current political life, like there are people you cannot bring the name of Donald Trump up and they get very upset. They they ask all kinds of bizarre questions like, well, why are you bringing that up? That's not relevant. It's like it's like the unspoken name of God. You know, I've never seen a political figure treated in this way in my life, which is rather long and rather complicated and been exposed to a lot of things. I mean, you can say almost anything about a politician and there's a contingent that will like it. There's a contingent that won't like it. But no one gets really hot and bothered because it's just, quote, politicians. There's something about the Trump phenomenon which is different. And that's part of the problem because in a marish chaos-driven politics now in Washington, since you and I both believe that the political process is the only means of getting to the truth as to the larger frame of what this extraterrestrial interaction and connection has been how do you how do you count on making progress in any normal manner politically when all around us to the left and right conventional politics is dissolving literally as we watch hmm. well that's a complex question uh good evening barbara it's nice to meet you i don't think we've ever appeared together but uh I'm honored to be in your presence. Once before we did, Steve. We did? Okay. Well, my memory is pretty much shot. I was born, (laughs) uh, let's see, I was born, hang on, I was born seven months before Roswell. All right. So uh, we're both tied. We're both tied to that era quite nicely. Uh, Look, Dick, let me me answer your question this way. Uh, We need to keep in mind that history is a multitasker. There's an awful lot going on all the time. Uh, particularly now that we think of the world in a global way, and so as opposed to what was happening in the village, right, from, say, a thousand years ago. So uh, anything you're trying to do, you are at the mercy of a countless number of potentially disruptive events, all right? Many of these, most of these, will not be connected to what you're doing at all. They're just going to be a problem. It's like driving down the road and a tree just got too old and died and fell over right in front of your car. And, and, and you're going, well, who, who asked that? And then you're going to be late. You know, you're going to be late for dinner. So there's a lot of that going on. Um, but with respect to the disclosure process or the politics of disclosure, as I like to often use the phrase, and again, disclosure in this case is the politics of getting the confirmation event. That's the capital D event. Not there's also a politics to the revealing process, that small D disclosure. But when I say politics of disclosure, I'm saying the politics that gets us to disclosure. With respect to that, we've had a a, a rough time. One of the reasons it's been rough is because it's taken so long. Uh, The longer you have to pursue, right, uh, something uh, in the public sector, particularly on a large scale, the more vulnerable you are to events. Okay, there are many examples of this, but. the civil rights movement was doing it best it can in the early of the 20th century. It, was having, it wasn't easy, but 
but they were making some progress and World War II happened. And by and large, that the civil rights movement had to take some time off. Whatever their plans were, uh, first we had to defeat the Nazis. Uh, and there are many examples like this. Okay, and, and, and in the case of the ET uh, and the politics of disclosure issues, uh, the 911 event was a massive disruption to the disclosure process. Uh, it happened just a few months after Stephen Greer's very significant press conference at the National Press Club, May 9th, 2001. And we were getting some press interest, and uh, uh, it looked very interesting. We're all very excited. And then 911 happened, and it just steps it. Goodbye. Well, didn't, didn't Koppel actually plan to, to feature you and uh, Greer and some other people on, on Nightline? Not exactly. He, he sent over a note um, but with Keith, I believe. Either Keith brought it or Keith, Keith, Keith took Greer's tape of about 75 witnesses, the ones that couldn't be there in person. He ran, he ran straight down to Koppel's office, slammed it into his VCR recorder, and Koppel watched some of it. And at some point shortly after that, later that evening, we got a, a message that they wanted to interview some of the witnesses. And they asked us to, or they asked to, to who. And so uh, uh, I could pass this on to Greer. Greer wrote down five or six names. We added Mitchell, Edgar Mitchell, even though he wasn't there, because mm. he was Edgar Mitchell, and fired that back. And uh, I think we got some word back that very likely they were going to start interviewing these individuals. It's, it's not a, it takes time for these things to mature, but they were going to interview these witnesses. That's exactly what, what Greer wanted, what we all wanted. And then 911 happened. Game yeah. over. Now, this has happened a number of times. Now, this last time was definitely a painful, okay, really, really painful because an enormous amount of work had gone into setting up uh, this process to unfold under Hillary Clinton as president. And, and it, wasn't, it wasn't a random selection. It wasn't like your number came up in the lottery. Uh, she and her husband and John Podesta, her campaign chair and chief advisor to her and her husband, had been connected to the ET issue all the way back to 1993. And from 1993 to 1996, Clinton was involved in this and trying to do things. And the government was basically saying, forget about it, Charlie. All right. The, uh, and interestingly enough, the, uh, the Rockefeller Initiative, as I came to call it, ended in late uh, uh, about October, around October, a very final thing happened around October of 1996. Just a month later, Carl Sagan died. I entered the field in July of that year. It was a very interesting year in a lot of ways. Uh, but they they got hooked to this issue by Lawrence Rockefeller, whether they wanted it or not, and had been hooked to it ever since. More importantly, they didn't just walk out the door and walk away from it. They had, they, I think from the, from the, from the time she, she, they left the White House, she had intentions about this issue because she was extremely upset that her husband was treated like, you know, like staff. I mean, just and like, like he was an employee of the Pentagon. Go mm. away, Mr. President, leave us alone. And, and, <laughs> and, the, and the ultimate insult uh, occurred in 1997 uh, or 1996-97. When uh, under Sheila Widnall, the, the, the female, first female secretary of the Air Force, and a very highly skilled and intelligent woman, uh, they spent, I don't know, $12 million to come up with a completely bogus report to try to keep Clinton at bay. Namely, 
the uh, that Roswell was a uh, a mogul balloon, oh, and the then tight, they tr- and, and the yeah. tank compression dummies. Yeah, the task test dummies uh, was what you saw, not alien bodies, four foot grays, but rather six foot uh, tall test. And this this was then presented at a press conference. Now you're talking real money here spent to basically lie to the president. So they go out the door, and the reason that I knew that this issue was had never left their place is because the, the person closest to them, the advisor most significant to them from beginning to end, John Podesta, hooked himself to this issue in 2002 and never left it and continued to drop breadcrumbs and deal with this issue in many ways all throughout uh, 2000, right? Uh, I mean, I'm sorry, all at the end of the, the 20th, I'm sorry, the beginning of the 20, 21st century, right on through her campaign. And so... I, I did my thing. I held a citizen hearing on disclosure. I launched a media campaign to get uh, coverage of her connection to this issue in the campaign. 400 articles were written. Uh, they, they, made, they, had, they were forced literally to go public in limited ways. She went on this show. Her husband went on that show. Podesta went on that show. And they were dropping various statements. I'm literally ordering a champagne mm. for the uh, disclosure celebration that was going to take place probably in the first third or fourth month of her administration, right? It was all set up and perfectly ready to go, but she she lost, uh, and I know why she lost, and it's regrettable. But she lost. Now, it 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 doesn't really matter who she lost to. The disclosure process at that point was going to stop, right? But uh, and and have to be picked wait, up. Wait, wait, wait. Right? Let's let's assume that the Jeb Bush had won the nomination. I believe it would have continued because it's got to be, you know, neutral. And Bushes have been very interested in ufology. I have separate sources for that. So I think if Jeb had been the candidate and he'd won, it would have proceeded. But Trump was totally. It's like who ordered this? Well, that's the point I'm trying to make. I, I again, I, I don't. You know, the, the process was going to be significantly interrupted. Uh, we were going to have to step back uh, because obviously I, she she could be the disclosure president quite easily, but that the next whoever was going to beat her uh, would have almost no connection to this issue. And Jeb Bush is not a good choice, uh, uh, Richard, because uh, as Barbara Honecker will tell you, the relationship between the Bushes and uh, Democratic presidents is not particularly very favorable. Um, and so. No, it wouldn't have happened, but it would not have been like Trump. Trump's winning was a black swan event that pretty much nobody saw coming, uh, to be honest with you. Uh, I mean, nobody who was what we call impartial observer saw coming. I guess, I suppose they highly partisans did. But well, so many. I did. <laughs> I on this, on this microphone, I did. Anyway, continue. I'd like to I make Barbara, a song. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Um, no, no, go ahead, Barbara. Oh, oh, okay. Yeah, I wanted to, um, first off, when you when you mentioned um, uh, Stephen Greer's press conference. Now, that's the one, if I remember correctly, where Carol Rosen spoke, correct? Correct. Yeah. I thought that was May 8th, but it was May 9th, was it, of 2001? Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, on May 8th, one day before, maybe a coincidence, maybe not. Um uh, President Bush, George w, George W. Bush, uh, announced officially 
that Dick Cheney, Vice President Dick Cheney, Liz Cheney's father, of all people, mm-hmm. um, that Dick Cheney, Vice President Cheney, uh, was being put in charge by the President of the United States of all counterterrorism preparations, including, including uh, war games and exercises. And I'm not sure if you're aware of it, but there were something like 26 war games and exercises, some of them on almost identical scenarios as the actual attacks on 9-11, on 9-11. So literally the day before that press conference. Now you have Mm -hmm. to ask yourself, what is it about this timing? Because those interviews that Ted Koppel was hopefully going to do would have taken time to create a program. And by the time they would have, if they'd gone forward, 9-11 would have happened. Um, so, that's, so that's one thing I wanted to mention. Um, it, but there are others. But I'll wait until Richard calls on um, hey, Look, uh, yeah, the whole 9 thing just didn't happen overnight. It was in play. There was a lot of things going on. Uh, and I don't, I don't think there's any connection between the ultimate 911 event and Greer's work or that press conference. It's just, as you say, as I said, history is a multitasker. There's a lot going well, on. Well, all right, and- Steve, let, let me stop you there because I've been at this a very long time, longer than you have. And what mm-hmm. I have learned has so humbled me over the last several decades because I started out thinking I kind of knew the terrain. And I realized kind of along the way, I, we, we don't know anything. This, this secret, this connection between humanity and whoever and whatever is out there, I have discovered through painstaking decades of work, particularly with verifiable stuff from NASA, from the agency, from what they are literally focusing all over Mars and not telling us about, that we are so intimately connected with what's out there that that has got to be the reason cover up at all different levels. And frankly, looking at the coincidences of almost disclosure and then sudden terrestrial nightmarish scenarios where everybody's attention is sucked away to something that's existential and life-threatening and life or death right now has happened over and over again to the point where I'm beginning to wonder whether this is, in fact, somehow a coordinated effort to distract at such a deep level that we never learn the truth and who we are because we're not dealing with strangers or aliens or the other. We're dealing with something so intimate to our very existence at multidimensional levels which includes what people have traditionally thought of as the spiritual, the occult. I think of it as hyperdimensional, that it's all part of one big tangled ball of yarn, and you can't pull on any thread without the whole thing threatening to unravel. And some extraordinary forces have exerted extraordinary influence and time and energy and effort to keep us from ever finding out who we really are. Or if I well, Richard, I'll... Or if Go I ahead, Mark. Remember finding out anything that really matters. Yes, exactly. Because, 
because the the bottom line here is the way I see this disclosure. Um, there are so many critical turning points in history, not just world history, but let's focus on American history, that we have been denied the truth about for so long. And every one of these state lives, they, they reinforce each other. So we've been lied about, we've been lied to about Roswell. We've been lied to about the presence. We've been lied to about JFK, who, after all, was like, uh, just like uh, President Clinton. He was demanding to have his full inside knowledge of disclosure. He was denied. This deep state is very real, okay? Uh, and then, so you had the, the withholding of the truth about JFK and the lies about JFK. You had the lies about what really happened in Iran-Contra, which is my book, October Surprise, the first, the first ever of by three years before Gary Six, and the truth about the Iran side of Iran-Contra. I mean, the most unbelievable treason, certainly at the level of January 6th. No question about it. We've been lied to about that with the official lie. We've been lied to about the theft of the 2000 election. We've been lied to about the theft by Republicans, all of them, by the way, uh, of, of the 1980 election, of the 2000 election, of the 2004 election in Ohio. And we've been lied to about this disclosure that we're focusing on so far in this program. We've been lied to about 9-11. As you know, I'm now chairman of the board, co-chairman of the board of the Lawyers Committee for 9-11 Inquiry. We are the only organization on the planet that is actively suing the United States government at all levels for real disclosure. And we're making progress, by the way. I think we're making better progress on 9-11 disclosure than has happened yet on um, UAP disclosure. So all of these lies and official cover stories, they're inter linked they're interlocked so to me disclosure is about radical truth telling and radical research period i agree steve steven unmuting helps um i didn't want any of my burps to come through um (laughs) Uh, we've got a Golden Corral buffet of issues uh, in play right now. I would ask, if you don't mind, pick an entree, and I'll and I'll take a bite at it. But pick something because we're all over the place here. <laughs> give me a give well, me a focused question. Well, I, I'm really intended for this conversation to be more loosey goosey because, again, given how politically dysfunctional we are in every realm that is up close and personal notwithstanding the exclusion of half of humanity in the United States as being real, real under the Constitution. I just wonder how pursuing a normal mainstream political process through the so-called hearings, et cetera, et cetera, are ever going to get us to the truth if, in fact, all of these huge cataclysmic political events suddenly descending 
are part of an orchestration to keep people so desperate, so focused, so narrowly examining their their navels that they don't give a damn about what's flying in the skies because they don't think it's relevant to their lives, which are perilously teetering on the edge of many cliffs at all. Okay. Um, that's one take uh, on this. Uh, that's not my take on this, but uh, that's one. I'm just a poor country lawyer. Actually, I'm not a lawyer. I'm a poor country <laughs> political activist, okay? Uh, uh, I, try to, I try to keep things simple so that I don't you know, have a brain aneurysm. Uh, I boil it down this way. Let me give you a very grounded practical example. You and I have agreed that Adam Schiff is a key player in the UFO, UAP disclosure political process in Washington, right? One of a number, yes. Well, he's the chairman of the damn committee. The guy from Indiana serves at his discretion. And, and he's he the chairman is, of, the, of the House Intel. Yeah. Uh, but uh, 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 Warner is chairman of the Senate Intel, and that's a more powerful committee than Adams. But both of them are very important, no question. My, my point is that Schiff's attention is totally taken up with what Barbara just referenced, the outright naked treason of January 6th. Until that is resolved and its tentacles go so wide and deep, and what we've heard so far is like the tip of the proverbial iceberg, I'm just wondering if that political reality, the very existence of the country, expands to fill all the space, take out all the oxygen in the room, and there's nothing left over for UAPs because it don't affect anybody, they think. Again, I see it differently. The, uh, me the, the, the issue. Tell us the alternative. Okay. Uh, first of all, the, the January 6th issue uh, is, again, one of the many things that have emerged out of the political chaos of the last five years. And that political chaos has definitely held things back, going all the way back to the beginning. Uh, once Clinton loses, we're, it's a significant setback. And then as we move forward, uh, uh, my feeling was is that post-Clinton's post loss, that the disclosure process was probably dead in the water, meaning literally uh, there was not how much anything could do in the U.S. Uh, foreign nations might, might make a move. You never know. I was extremely depressed, uh, and my funding, ability to raise funds is pretty much gone. And I, I left uh, the U.S., went to the U.K. to, to stay with a, a very nice supporter uh, where I could stay for quite a while. I ended up staying about seven, eight months uh, while it sorted things out. Okay, now, <clears throat> what did happen is that in spite of this rather extraordinary right turn that we took there in that election, there was something else going on. In other words, uh, the disclosure process itself is multitask multitask it's not just one thing there's a lot of things going on and so what happened was the to the stars academy emerged uh and launched itself in october of 2017 uh it was a gutsy call on their part uh i know the planning for that went all the way back to 2015 that their plan was to launch after clinton won not not after she lost uh, but nevertheless even though the chaos was was all around us, even by, by uh, in that first year, they decided to go ahead and launch anyway and take their chances. Now, 
they lost into a very difficult situation, which made what they tried to do very difficult uh, and slowed it down and has kind of dragged it out. So in that case, the election was affecting the process. It didn't end it because there were some other people uh, out there that I didn't even know about that were ready to come in, and they did. Now, over the last four years, we have made extraordinary progress uh, without question. And I am somebody that one of the things I do is I follow the media on this. I read all of the mainstream articles on this issue from any reasonably good press, right and left. Uh, I don't go into the fringe stuff or some of the Internet stuff because it's impossible. There's tens of thousands of articles. But New York Times, Washington Post, all the key newspapers, CNN, Embassy, I'm watching. I'm, I'm following all this. And the coverage has been unprecedented. The type of coverage has completely changed. And the things that have happened absolutely unprecedented in, in the last four years, in spite of the fact that the political chaos has only worsened with each passing year. All right. And so we've made Bill extraordinary progress. Now, in addition to the political chaos, we had the worst pandemic in human history based upon the, the totality of the infection, the scope, the number of people affected, the economic impact. This is the worst in history. That, that, that's a black swan event, too. Has nothing to do with ETs or disclosure. All right. But we had to deal with that. And then uh, as we move forward a little bit, we've had some progress in just the last year. The next thing you know, Putin decides that he's going to die soon. And therefore, if he's going to have to to die, everybody else is going to have to die with him. So he decides to go get Ukraine as a as a legacy bobble uh, and, no, and wait, wait, start wait. the war. You, you just said something very controversial. Okay. The starting of the war is because he's dying. How do you know that? I think there's significant evidence that he's seriously ill. These articles have been numerous. They've come from multiple directions. He's had a medical team following him around literally 24 hours a day for some time. And it's clear he has uh, almost certainly cancer uh, and some other issues. And, but he's also got the finest medical care that Russia can provide. So let me say when I say dying, I don't mean he's in a bed with a bunch of tubes attached to him, but his prospects are not good. All right. And so he's in he's in end times uh, and there's plenty of media coverage of this. Don't take my word for it. And so he does what people sometimes do, particularly autocrats do when they're near the end. All right. Uh, and uh, they oftentimes try to get do something really cool uh, on their way out the door. He's made an like extreme January poor choice. Uh, well, that's not Putin, but but still, no, but, it, but, you, but it is it is it's the equivalent in the United States, an autocrat. Well, yeah, I mean we've got yeah we've got we've got January sixth is is an actual event was unprecedented. So the January sixth insurrection, the pandemic, the war in Ukraine, these are very significant events capable of sucking up enormous amounts of political coverage and popular attention. But in spite of that, through all of it, the articles in our mainstream English language press have just been piling up. Uh, the total number of articles that I'm just logging in with respect to what's happened since 2017 is approaching like 1,900 that are directly related to the events of then and the following actions by the DOD, several thousand overall. Everything is being covered. We've had extraordinary developments in the Congress, in legislation, over at the DOD, 
Uh, we've had people from, uh, from, from national security backgrounds like Radcliffe and Brennan and Woolsey coming forward and say, ah, you know, I, I don't think we understand that phenomena. Uh, and you've got NASA deciding it's time for it to get on board. Nelson comes out and says, look, uh, we don't understand this. Then they announce they're going to have it. And I could go on and on and on. So the fact is that in spite of all these very difficult uh, issues that we are facing that have global implications, we are making extraordinary progress. If it wasn't for these events, we would already be there. So what I'm saying now is this. The January 6th, you want projections. Here's my projections. Put the money down. January 6th hearings are going to go on through July. They're going to end around the uh, end of July, maybe a little bit sooner. There will be indictments from the DOJ, guaranteed. There will be indictments of Trump. There will be indictments of people around him. Now, that's going to be a big event, too, but it's not quite as distracting as you might think. We also have the political campaign underway, which is going to be pretty vicious, and so that's going to take up some space. But once the, the, hearings are, uh, the six hearings are over, by and large, unless something develops extraordinarily bad in the Ukraine, the door is open for the next hearings on the UAP issue. Uh, they will, I think you can have them in early August. Uh, there may, the, first, the next one may be another uh, subcommittee hearing, like we just had a couple of functionaries come up, another briefing, whatever. Yeah, or we might jump. Speaking yeah. of functionaries, I was extraordinarily disappointed in the functionaries that appeared in that first subcommittee hearing. And the only thing that kind of turned it around for me was the presence of Schiff in the room and actually participating. But in terms of these two lackeys, eschewing the idea that they didn't even know what Project Blue Book was, I mean, that does not bode well for a serious in-depth drill down on a phenomenon that basically is part and parcel of the origin and destiny of humanity. Of course, well, I they knew what Project Blue Book was. The whole original hearing a few months ago was just a limited <laughs> hangout. It, it was to make it appear they were doing something when they're not. That's my uh, point. I, That's I my disagree. whole point, Barbara. Uh, all right, please disagree with specifics. What, what gives happened, you optimism? Th- this, this is exactly the hearing that I expected to happen. It's totally appropriate for the process that's underway. All right. Uh, what, they're going to hold the first hearing, start dragging records from Roswell out, bring in some dead bodies, open up all the files? No, but they can stuff. at least acknowledge there was a Project Blue Book and it looked into all this and so we're be going through the files. Yeah. You know, Dick, there's a process underway. Uh, it's being orchestrated between the Congress of the United States and the Department of Defense. Uh, they don't consult me and they don't consult you. So don't expect them. It's like going to somebody's house for dinner, eating a certain meal. You're going to get whatever the hell they serve. And what they served was per- perfectly fine. They needed to, the first hearing needed to be relatively safe. Uh, it was a subcommittee hearing. Carson was a perfect choice. They brought two functionaries up there. In other words, these are people that work high level in the Pentagon who have experience managing things that they assign to manage this. It's not like they they searched the Pentagon for people that have been studying UFOs for their entire life and watch the X, X, you know, the the X files all the time. To claim not to know Blue Book. I mean, come on. They they I don't recall that he he claimed he didn't know about uh uh, Malmstrom. The point is, is that there's a there's a whole lot of things that they didn't come up there to say, right? They could not say. What this was was the initial icebreaker 
to show that the Pentagon is responding to the Congress oversight ability. It's, it's bringing people up there. They're trying to give reasonable questions about what's going on. It was mostly about process. All right. Uh, they answered the questions. The, the, the committee conducted itself in a reasonably nice way. Not a lot of posturing. They showed nonpartisanship. That was necessary. There was a couple of very juicy things that got tossed out, which was great. I was happy to have them, though I didn't necessarily expect them. And everything went off. Nobody uh, ran screaming out of the room. Uh, and it was fine. Okay. That's the icebreaker. This is an issue that's going to require multiple hearings to resolve. There's all kinds of people involved with all kinds of concerns. It's a difficult thing, and they are trying to do it as best they can. That was not a bad opening move. All right. So I'm happy with it. If people aren't happy with it, that's okay. They're going to get another hearing pretty soon. All right. The hearings that we're waiting for are the hearings in front of the intel committees involving military witnesses. And that's where this is going. That was a first step. We may go right to the intel committees with military witnesses, or there may be one more subcommittee hearing, kind of, again, loosen things up a little bit and show some progress. I can't predict, but I do think we'll see hearings in August, and then we'll see how fast things move forward. Barbara, you're, and please take this the right way, you're an old hand. You've worked in the White House. You've worked for a very... I'm an experienced hand, is a better word. Experienced, Dick. That's what you're supposed to say. You know, for a a very pivotal president in American history, how do you view the hearing process that we've seen so far on this subject? Are you talking about January 6th or the... No, 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 UAP, UAP. Well, um, actually, Steve and I were on your show talking about this a few months ago, um, right after... We have a lot of new listeners. Right, right after... Yeah, I'm I'm just pointing out that Steve didn't remember that, but it's okay. So, as I said then, I I tend to I tend to be a little bit more on the side of the scale where you are, Richard. Although I agree with Steve that we don't know where it's going. Um, I believe that the entire process will simply be a limited hangout. And that's what I saw the writing on the wall in the first hearing. I just have to tell you that. Um, I don't think it's going to be any different than the Warren Commission. Um, I do think that the January 6th hearings are serious. Uh, The parallels or at least the comparisons are already being made in the mainstream media to the Watergate hearings. Mm. Don't forget the Watergate hearings went on, what was it, a year and a half or two years before there was before there was the breakthrough of the Butterfield tapes. So we're, we're waiting for something like the Butterfield tapes uh, in the January 6th hearings. I do think... Well, if Cipollone... Uh, yeah, let me finish, yeah. let me finish answering okay, your question. From, a, from the higher point of view, uh, the kind of uh, eagle-side point of view that you were, um, you know, basically saying you were coming from to Steve, um, from imagining that eagle-side point of view... I do think that there could very well be some kind of planning causal relationship if ET and or abduction disclosure, I like to think of that in terms of manipulation of human evolution in terms of DNA, Um, but in any case, that's the big picture. from if you really believe that that's what really matters in terms of disclosure, 
that 9-11 and JFK and, you know, October surprise and, and uh, World Trade Center attack of 9-3 and all of that doesn't really matter in comparison. I disagree. But nevertheless, if you take that position, which I believe Steve does, and you probably do more than I do, Richard, from that assumption, I do think that it is more likely than not that there is a relationship between 9-11 and bringing Cheney in to orchestrate 9-11. I don't buy for a second the official story of 9-11. That was the self-attack of the United States deep state led by Dick Cheney with Cheney's father on our own country to blame on the Muslims. Okay? So if from that higher point of view, I think that it could have, there could be a causal relationship between Dick Cheney being put in charge of all of that, basically in charge of orchestrating the attack on, on our own country. And he was officially put in charge of that on May 8th of 2001. Uh, Stephen Greer's press conference at the National Press Club is the next day. There, there's some weird noise in the background. If someone's moving a mic, can they um, uh, move it, please? Uh, not that I know of, but um, okay. Um, I, I think that there could be a causal relationship of that. It certainly knocks the disclosure you're talking about off of the mainstream media for a good long time, okay? And then what did we have next? What we had next was COVID, right? And you think it's a coincidence that just as COVID, the international uh, you know, geopolitical across the globe um, uh, attack on COVID, when that is suddenly lifted and the official line across the world becomes, well, okay, we're, we're not going to worry about this so much anymore. You can do what you want, but you still should probably wear a mask. None of this top-down uh, enforcement uh, of non-voluntary uh, lockdowns and such. The moment that's lifted, right after that, what do we get? We get the Ukraine invasion. You think any of these things are just coincidences? There's this a is, this is, in all of this. This is my thread through tonight. I think they are related. And at the first level, Steve, I think they're related to distract us so we never, ever get the disclosure because I found from my own work and the work of my colleagues through the NASA data, we have found the DNA mixing laboratories and they're on Mars. There's a damn museum which NASA photographed and made public just the other day, of course, denying what they were doing. If you go to the other side of midnight and you look at my items, click on Richard under the banner on the guest page, you want to go down to item number seven, okay? You're in front of a computer, right, Steve? Steven? Unmuting helps. Uh, yeah, okay. I'm on a computer. Okay. Go to the other side of midnight. Mm-hmm. Go to, click on the banner that takes you to the guest page. Mm-hmm. Click on fast links under the banner on that page to to my section, then scroll down to number seven. Uh, Guest page, guest index, what's the page I need to go to? 
All right. You you found the home page. You have a site of I'm on the home. I'm on the home page. Yes. At the top of that, there's a banner for tonight's show. Your name is listed. Follow your name. Got it. Okay. Click on that. Okay. Okay. Uh, uh, oh, wait a minute. I'm not. I'm not seeing it. Uh, Thursday, June. No, no, no. That's not it. No. Saturday. I'm on the wrong page. Yeah. You want. You want Sunday night. Let me try home. I'm hit. Okay. I'm at the home page. That's where I'm at now. Okay. Home page. Click on tonight's show. Click on tonight's show in the upper left hand. Tonight's show. Got it. Okay. Got tonight's show. It's coming up. Then I see my. Okay. Got the graphic here. Bassett. Underneath it says fast links. See that? Okay. On. Coming on down. Uh, Right under the banner it says to listen to the show. Then it says guest page. Then fast links to items. There it is. Okay, which one do I click? Click on Richard. Richard, fast links. Okay. Go down to number seven. Number seven. Okay, the curate, the Marchandora thingy. And okay. Yeah, sure. I'm aware. And nine. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now you can click on it and make it bigger, but it, actually on the page is pretty nice. That's a damn door. Everybody who's looked at this, and I'm talking about citizens. Contractors, carpenters, architects, engineers, just ordinary housewives, unordinary housewives, everybody. We've got mail that's five miles high. 99% say that's a door. And as you can see in number eight, we've actually got a formal analysis that was done by uh, Tim Saunders last night. Mm-hmm. Geometrically, he's an architect. You know, He, he designs uh, uh, yachts. Um, marine designer. He says it's a door. All the experts we've talked to, architects and contractors, they say it's a door. 60 seconds. Um, and I'll tell you what, let me, let me kind of pause here because I don't want to truncate what we're doing. This is too important to get through too quickly because this kind of sums up what it is we're trying to do. Because ultimately, the question is, are we going to be taking this road, Karen Carpenter, our friends out there? Are we going to be taking the route we've taken for the last 75 years? Obfuscation, lies, deception, cover-up, distraction, everything. Everything except finding out what it all means. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. Oh, your turn. Of interplanetary craft. Calling occupants of interplanetary most extraordinary craft. The other side of midnight.com. Talk radio with pictures on demand. Liberate your hyperdimensional time scale and nonlinearly access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought.
join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule. Filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month, $0.33 cents a day. Talk radio with pictures on demand. The other side of midnight.com. Give us some background as to why you picked that date. 
Well, metaphysically speaking, uh, it's said that the spiritual hierarchy of this planet conclave every hundred years to uh, discuss the unfoldment of the next step in human evolution. And back in the 1930s and 40s, um, there were esoteric texts being written that the next one would be in 2025 and that the agenda uh, would be the discussion of the externalization of the spiritual hierarchy on Earth, which too long to go into, but is analogous to or tied to um, the bigger family out there. Uh, so, um, and, and then, and, and you, and we need Rick Levine for this, but I think astrologically, uh, there's a setup for 2026 and 27 that is a possibility for big expansions of consciousness for humanity. Well, this, of course, in my mind, is all based on the hyperdimensional model, and the celestial alignments are triggers for openings, both physics and consciousness and all that. So that show we're going to do next Sunday on the 10th, okay? Uh, Rick is better. He had COVID. He's recovered. Uh, you're part of that, and we're going to have a very open and wide-ranging discussion as to why this time is so special and why all this stuff is hitting the fan now and how the whole ET uh, unveiling, better than that term disclosure. Steve, do you know who coined that stupid term disclosure? Steve Bassett? Well, yes. which term are you referring to? Are you referring disclosure. To... Disclosure. Well, disclosures. Disclosure as a process, a process of revealing. Right. And that term, small d, as it, as it applies to revealing of information about the ET issue. And, and you need to way, get closer to that mic because you're very far away. For I'm so sorry. Uh, that term was basically put in play by Stephen Greer. Oh. The Disclosure Project was about, essentially about getting the information out, getting uh, what, we, what the government knows. I then introduced in around, I don't know, 19, 2000, I think, Disclosure with a capital D, all right? And the difference is disclosure with a capital D is a proper noun. It refers to an event like Christmas and Easter. And that event is the formal confirmation by head of states, uh, heads of state of, of the ET presence. It's an event. Happens in one day, 10 minutes, whatever. That's disclosure capital D. That's the line we have to cross. And so there's two disclosures. And so which one are you referring to? Well, I was thinking more of the kind of whole event thing not the process but that everybody's waiting for the magical you know address that's me. from the oval office yeah that's me i haven't copyrighted it but who knows maybe i will <laughs> yeah that's that's one of my contributions to the lexicon of this of this issue see i used to think that that was going to be the catalyzing event and now i'm more in the georgia camp i think this is a process as the intel community loves to say a soak time or Brookings called for an acculturization period over decades, a generation or more, to where when the, quote, disclosure event finally happens, everybody goes, oh, I knew that all along. You know, what's going on? What's, what's, what, what is Kim Kardashian doing tonight? In other words, there are, we're already there, Dick. That's what people are going to be saying. They're going to be saying, I knew it all along. But the, 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 then the, why the do we whole... have to have the event? What's the damn event? 
that we're all waiting the re- for. Uh, like well, the great pumpkin the, is a friend of the mine. Analogy, the analogy, uh, the best analogy I can give you is this. There have been circumstances in the past where the, we were mad, uh, people were mad at one other country and they wanted to go to war. Okay? And so if a lot of people want to go to war, why do we have to declare war? Why don't we just all get together and head on over there? Without a declaration of war, you're not going to be able to formally galvanize the necessary resources and people no, wait, to wait, launch wait, an actual war. We had several wars in the last 20th century that were never declared. Look at Vietnam. Look, I mean, come on. Uh, we're splitting hairs here. Those no, wars we're not. Were... There was no oh. official declaration. There was a fake pretense, the Tonkin Gulf and the resolution. That was our acknowledgement publicly. Yes, it was an event. turned out to be a lie. Same thing with 9-11. Uh, look, um, the, yeah, you're right. There wasn't a formal. There was a use of force declarations, which has been an abuse of that, of that uh, concept. In other words, we should have had declarations of wars, but we had something less than that, but it was still formal. Okay? You just don't go to war because the president comes and says, I think we ought to go to war. No, no. There has to be a formal process. Without disclosure by a head of state, you're not going to have the, necess- the necessary things that we need to see are not going to take place. The universities are going to start teaching it. The, 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 the journalists are not going to start deeply investigating it. Funding is not going to be available for it. We're going to continue simply going along, bumping around in, in the middle of the night, or walking around in the dark. We have to have that formal acknowledgement. That then confirms it. That opens up the gates, gets rid of the ridicule, and move, move forward. There's a whole lot of things that happen in, in a country like the United States that require a formal policy. You're seeing that right now on the abortion issue. Without a formal statement or decision from the Supreme Court, the states could not do what they're about to do. They couldn't just do it because they felt like it. And so the, 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 the truth embargo has prevented us from properly engaging the issue, advancing the issue, teaching the issue. It's sequestered technology and other stuff from us, created all the secret programs. None of that is going to change until we get the formal capital D disclosure from the president of the United States. That's why it's important. Now, if you disagree, that's okay. But so far, that's exactly what's happened. Without that formal acknowledgement, we're going, well, we're simply going around in circles or circling the runway, hoping to get a chance to land. <laughs> the other analogy, I'm like glad you didn't go there, there, was circling like the drain. Yes, Barbara, go ahead. To do is just at least get on the table my items, uh, whether we That's... end up speaking about them or not, because it's directly related to the current statements we've just heard. Uh, the bottom line is, it, as they say, elections matter. Elections have consequences. It really matters to the President of the United States. Yes. Not just for this disclosure we're talking about, but for everything. And if we didn't learn that with President Trump or ex-President Trump, we will never learn it. So if everybody could go to my items, and again, um, right under today's banner for tonight's show, uh, a little bit down, you'll see guest page, and then you'll see fast links to items. If everybody could please click on Barbara. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm going to go through these very quickly and make my points very quickly because I just think they need to be on the table. All right. The, the first image there is taken in the cabinet room in December of 1981. Uh, on the left is President Reagan. And, of course, this is the same President Reagan who uh, 
in his one of his presentations, formal presentations at the United Nations, um, in, evoked the image of the way you can bring not just the world, but really the United States together with the rest of the world and within the United States, is if there were uh, a an external uh, attack on the earth. Now, I don't think that that's real, but nevertheless, uh, he put it on the table at the United Nations. On the on the right, to my left, but on the right in the photo, is Vice President Bush, after whom, after all, the entire uh, Central Intelligence Agency headquarters is named. So basically, George H.W. Bush, George Bush Sr., represents the so-called intelligence community. We're trying to get to tell us the truth, along with the DOD. Okay, number two. Reagan has not fulfilled his promise. This goes together with number three. Um, this is the, Reagan is signing the ERA alternative. Uh, that is, that happened just before the photograph in number one. Um, I was the author of the so-called ERA alternative, which was his first promise in his uh, acceptance speech at the 1980 Republican convention. Now, the so-called ERA alternative was a total sham. But I took it very seriously. I moved to the Department of Justice, and I was the director of the so-called ERA alternative. Single law, um, regulation, policy, practice, and procedure of all 46 uh, U.S. departments uh, and agencies in the entire U.S. government. This was I in lieu of the states ratifying the Equal Rights Amendment to the Constitution. Well, that's correct. At the time that Reagan was elected in uh, 1980 and became president January 20th, 1981, uh, the ERA was still in the ratification process, but it failed in 1982. But putting that aside, the reason I'm the reason I'm bringing this in is so that people understand that I resigned publicly on national television over Reagan's war on women, and I warned the nation about everything that just happened with our Supreme Court. I warned, and I was called a Cassandra, that what I was saying was going to happen if the Republicans got their way because it was their explicit plan. Uh, I was told that it was too extreme. It would never happen. No one would ever even think of doing such a thing. If you go down to number nine, just the other day, Kathy Hutchinson uh, spoke before the January 6th Commission and broke the whole thing wide open. The reason I'm mentioning that is when I resigned from the Reagan White House and Justice Department on national television, it was either the Today Show or Good Morning America, um, there, were, there was 10 days of escalating national and international publicity over it. So far, Kathy Hutchinson has maybe had a week. So I'm just, there's no ego in this. I'm just letting you know that I've experienced what she went through, okay? Um, so I just want you to know about that. Um, I Back to the main point. It really matters who is president of the United States. And what Georgia said about 2025, what else happens in 2025? The next president of the United States will be in office, will be inaugurated on January 20th. Is that going to be Donald Trump or not? Okay. Mm. Now, the January 6th on number six, number six, number seven, uh, number eight, and 
number number eight. Let's see. The bottom line is uh, 85% of the American public by the most recent poll says that the country is on the wrong track. Now, what that means is our country is completely polarized and divided. That is by design. It is by Republican design. I warned about it when I resigned from the Reagan White House and Justice Department. For 10 days on national and international television and in the newspapers, I warned about it. I was called a Cassandra. What the Republican design is, they even have a name for it. They had a name for it inside the Reagan Bush Senior White House. It was called the New Federalism. Another word for that is the balkanization of the United States of America. The Republican goal is to have the United States federal government only, only being funded for and executing the Department of Defense, Defense, Police, and the Courts, okay? Those are traditionally Republican bastions, okay? And their explicit goal in the so-called New Federalism Program that Reagan initiated in the White House, where I was in the second floor of the West Wing for two years, the New Federalism Program's explicit goal was to balkanize the United States and return everything else to the state and to completely defund all, I underline all, social programs, period. Again, back to it makes a difference who is president of the United States, number five. Number five is a PowerPoint. It is a partial PowerPoint. It's the, it's the, uh, the slides that are the most important of a public address that I gave in Santa Cruz, California, and also many other places throughout California, immediately after Trump was elected. I knew exactly who this man was. And people simply need to look at that PowerPoint. Okay? They simply need to look at the PowerPoint. I want to remind people that Trump's uncle, his uncle who stood behind him before he recently died, received the information from um, Nikola Tesla. From Nikola Tesla's apartment when the FBI raided. Okay? Now I'm here to tell you, just go back and look at look at the images in the early morning hours of November night did not expect to win. He was in shock when he walked on the stage with his family. There was, just like, just like the JFK election was manipulated, just like the October surprise, the election was stolen from Carter by the Republicans, just like the 2000 election was completely, completely stolen from the Democrats, from Gore. There was later, um, about a year later, there was the New York Times-Washington Post consortium, which re-every vote in Florida just before 9-11. That consortium had determined that Gore had won. And the national security state was in crisis in secret. What happened? 9-11, so that Bush could be a war president, and so that Gore would not take over the White House 
after the fact, okay? So it really matters who's president of the United States. And the whole... Barbara, let let me interrupt and introduce something, because where I really got very sour on Trump, and there are people in the audience who, of course, are fainting because I'm mentioning Trump's name, and I'm not supposed to do that on this show. I was told that last night. Oh, that's not relevant. Let me tell you why it's incredibly relevant. When Trump came in, I was slightly hopeful that a brand new broom would sweep things in a way that had not happened since like Teddy Roosevelt, that maybe this guy really was independent and he would gather, you know, from left and right and the center and would cut through the bureaucracy in ways that really this country needs some kind of regeneration. And so we prepared the the group here, the Enterprise Mission Imaging Team. We put together a briefing video, about two hours of detailed information from NASA, from the president's own hand-picked head of the agency, because the head of NASA serves at the pleasure of the president, part of the executive branch for those who don't follow, you know, all this, how all this stuff works. I had a friend in New York who was another billionaire who'd known Trump for like 40 years. And I prevailed upon him to literally hand carry in a digital era by means of sending and making sure it got to the right person, this briefing on what his own NASA has been doing. And at the end of the video, you can see it. It's available for anybody now to buy for a nominal sum. At the end of the video, I lay out what the president, President then Trump, should have done, which is to pick up the phone, call his hand-picked NASA administrator, who was a guy named Jim, I forget his last name at the moment, and say, Jim, I want the photographs of the damn stuff on Mars on my desk in half an hour. Get down here. And it never happened. And I'm looking at this with... You know, people are saying, oh, he did the Space Force and he did this and he did that. He did not disclose that we live in a solar system populated by extraordinary ancient ruins, ancient libraries, ancient technology, ancient ghosts, the ghosts of our past, the connection with how we got here, why we're in such a muddle. All the answers to all the major questions of life are tied up in these artifacts that NASA has been sitting on for over half a century, and it fell to this one guy, this president from outside, who could have lifted the veil, who had enough evidence to at least pick up the phone and demand that he see the actual NASA evidence, and nothing ever happened. The reason? Because that was never his agenda, Barbara, I believe, in the first place. Well, it was never the agenda of the people who are behind him. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, on, on 9-11 itself, Trump, I mean, after all, he was a, a real estate tycoon. He knows about building Ira. Well, didn't he say during the campaign, during the primary in South Carolina, said. that the Bushes were involved in complicity for 9-11? I was, what I was just going to say is that on 9-11 itself, um, Trump was interviewed, and I could send the, the link to the video on YouTube. Trump was interviewed, and he said, he said, uh, you know, those planes couldn't have brought down those towers. There had to be, it's now been proven. 
okay? We're in court in, uh, in the Southern District of New York, in New York City. Uh, we're moving forward and we have had our oral arguments already in court, um, demanding a new real investigation of what really brought down the Twin Towers and World Trade Center 7 on 9-11. He himself said that. And he, made, he said that he would, that if he were president, that he would disclose. He didn't disclose that either. No, he didn't disclose that because that's not the agenda. But I'm telling you that the agenda of the Republican Party is absolutely in line with everything that Putin was trying to achieve. And well, that's he follows the party line. I mean, remember, the during his entire four years, Trump never said a bad word about Putin, regardless of what Putin has done. And after he was no longer president, he still won't say. In fact, he's been saying positive things about what a genius Putin is for starting the well, that's, that's uh, correct. Ukraine war. That's correct. And that's because there's a very high level decision making body on this planet that has decided that the balkanization of the United States and Putin's original attempt to balkanize NATO, which has backfired on him with invasion of Ukraine. But the balkanization of the United States, just like we went into the Middle East on the 9-11 line and balkanized Iraq and we balkanized, uh, we tried to balkanize uh, Syria uh, and we would like to balkanize Iran, which is the final domino in the, uh, the neocons plan. It's the, neo, it's the neocons who, who were behind the, uh, the, the Maiden Square Revolution that triggered this whole thing that Putin is doing in Ukraine to begin with. Okay, let me, let me move the conversation back to Stephen first, and then Georgia, I haven't forgotten you're there. Okay. Stephen, if the game is rigged, and I know this is hard to take, and I've, I've had to take my lumps you know, over the years thinking that this would be a lead pipe cinch, that anybody could see this stuff and the fact that a taxpayer agency is sitting on stunning information which could radically transform humanity in all kinds of positive ways. I've gotten used to the fact that's not going to happen by itself and it has to be pushed. If the fix is in, if these hearings are just pretenses and they're sidetracked, as an activist, what is your plan B? Well, first of all, I don't think they're rigged. Uh, so I don't need a plan B. Okay. You see what I'm saying? Uh, again, I, I have a perspective on this that uh, developed over 26 years. I'm confident about it. I'm open to these other interpretations. It's a complex world. There's always things happening. But um, my assessment is that we're in the last weeks and months, hopefully, barring anything profoundly dramatic, uh, of the truth embargo, and there's evidence for that all over the place, and it's it's even stronger in my view because of all of the obstacles that have taken place that are going on. There was a time when any one of these things would have cut this thing in half. I mean, it would have stopped it cold, but not now. Over the last five years, the process has punched through one major new development after another and continued forward. Remember, uh, you had the uh, the uh, the insurrection took place in January 6th of 2021, and in spite of that and all the foo that it created, what happened? You've got Rubio's uh, inclusion of language in the appropriations bill, a report from Congress, another bill was passed, Gillibrand stepped in, other members of Congress stepped in. 
Hold it there. We're at the bottom of the hour. My guest this morning is Stephen Bassett, Barbara Honiger, and Georgia Lambert. And Georgia, we're coming to you uh, next. You're on the other side of midnight. You know, it's obviously a lot of me wants Steve to be right. But a lot of me also knows that Barbara's right. And I've been spending, you know, a lot of years, decades, trying to get honesty on something that should have been, you know, a no-brainer from the get-go. You've got an agency which serves as the president of the American people. It goes out in the solar system and discovers stunning stuff left by somebody. And then the data moves us closer and closer to who it is, and it turns out to be us, our great, 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 great ancestors. And the images coming down from Mars, particularly that doorway, which appears to be a museum or a lab or something, the iconography, the artwork, the statues, the frescoes, the three-dimensional figures, the freezes, all of this that NASA is giving us essentially uncensored except for one crucial they won't say one about what it is they're providing the American people and the politicians and the White House and the entire U.S. government. The photographs are there. You can look at them and decide for yourself, is that a door? It's so interesting that all the people outside of NASA take one look and say, well, of course it is. There's even a post on the left-hand side that is stunningly artistically decorated with motifs, hieroglyphs, and faces, just like the comparison in image number nine of this tall totem from uh, the Maya in Guatemala that Juan Gerbron, one of our team members, found. It's all there, who we are, where to go now to get the answers. We have the technology, we have the tools, we have the agencies, we have the willingness of the American people to support NASA. All we needed was the truth during the Trump administration. And tonight would have been radically different than it is right now. Because yes, There is a documented long-term interest of extraterrestrials in human reproduction. Why? And suddenly, out of the blue, a court decision which forces every single woman in America to have children, even if they can't or don't want them, no matter where they come from. These are connected? Yes. You bet they're connected. Yes, they are. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. You shall return.
theothersideofmidnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. The broadcast and don't miss another groundbreaking conversation. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. And welcome back, everyone, to the other side of midnight here on this Sunday night, Monday morning, July 4th. My guest this morning is Steve Bassett, who is a long time, we now know how long, very determined, very proficient, very professional, and very successful political activist, the only one that I know who is a registered lobbyist for the subject of UFOs, ETs, and UAPs in Washington. Barbara Honiger, member of the Reagan White House, who broke with uh, some very fundamental Reagan policies and is giving you an inside look at a long-term plan by one of the two major parties in America to basically return the country to, to well, I don't know what. And finally, uh, Georgia Lambert, last but not least. Georgia, what are your thoughts on uh, where we are right now? What particular area? Well, in other words, what, what you've heard, heard is kind of like the optimist and the pessimist. And I, I wanted you to get back to why you picked the 24-25 time frame, because that, again, has a huge cosmic significance in the physics. Well, again, the 2025 is uh, referencing the 100-year uh, conclave that supposedly the spiritual hierarchy or those masters or elder brothers or however you want to uh, call it, um, those that guide the, the destiny of humanity, the evolution, the spiritual evolution of humanity. Oh, I thought you were going to go for the even bigger cycle, which is the end of the 2,500-year, give or take, well, there's, there's in that the Vedic cycle, which yeah. parallels the Platonic processional cycle, which in the physics of celestial mechanics, and you and Rick and I are going to talk about this next Sunday, well, you always, the whole damn system. You always talk about wheels within wheels, and we've got mm-hmm. cycles that are, 
within cycles within cycles that are dovetailing. I did want to pick up on one thing that uh, Stephen was talking about earlier about uh, the formal disclosure. I think he's right about that, that there needs to be, as part of the, quote, ritual that you always talk about, Richard, uh, there has to be some formal acknowledgement. That's, that's part of the part of the unfolding and I think that's a very necessary part okay um, but, but but let me let me you know push back <clears throat> when a when a woman's going to have a baby <clears throat> and you can wait on this Barbara it doesn't matter what the doctor says what the calendar says what anything says when it's time it's time that's the idea, true the that's idea true. the idea that this huge momentous paradigm shift back to paradigm research organization has to have some politician officially announce it for everyone to get that we're in this new transitional reality it, it if it's not ludicrous it's the next best thing too in other words are we all waiting process which is so damn broken that we can't even all fix a parking uh, ticket together no, we're not waiting for the process, but the process has to be part of the mix. I mean, in your analogy about the baby, yes, the baby's going to be born regardless. But if you want it to be uh, financially legitimate, it has to be recognized and given a birth certificate. Stephen, let me ask you, um, you and I focus a lot because that's the kind of people we are, and Barbara too, and uh, for someone who's deeply into metaphysics, I'm astonished all the time by how up on current things uh, Georgia is. We're all focused in Washington, the human you know, drama, the political back and forth and making progress and ultimately institutionalizing this. There is an old cliche in war that the enemy has a vote. In this case, well, I'll amend that. The ETs, given that they're thinking conscious beings, and in my model, a lot of them are related. They're part of our own history, who we are. They, they give a damn about humans because they are human, et cetera, even if they don't hang their hat here. If the ETs are part of the solution, why don't they have a vote? And when do they exercise the vote? And after you answer that, I have an example I want to run by you of something that just occurred that I think is an ET vote in this larger discussion, and nobody seems to understand it yet for what it might be. Do they have a vote? Uh, moving away from the vote meme, let me say that I believe that the ETs have influenced the process. Uh, to what degree? Uh, I don't know. Uh, there's a little evidence here and there of how they might have uh, influenced this process, uh, or there's things that have happened that might not have been about influencing the disclosure process, but about something else. For instance, why did they keep turning off our nuclear weapons or the Russian Soviet weapons? Uh, was that influencing the disclosure process? Was that sending a message about nuclear weapons? We can only speculate there. Um, and that's as far as I can go. Ultimately, while I do try to look at the world through ETIs to try to see if I can understand what they do and why they do in terms of the politics, the politics of disclosure, that's terrestrial. All I can do is focus on what's happening down here, what we can do, 
what's necessary politically, uh, educating the public about the basics without getting too far afield, and hope for the best. Later, Hopefully, down the line, maybe a couple of years, we'll be actually in direct open contact with ETs, and we can ask them, what was your game plan during the last 75 years? <laughs> that, would be a, that would be a fun time. I oh, look forward boy. to uh, hearing their answer. Well, we could have we could, uh, Richard could interview them on the program. Oh, from your lips to God's ears, Barbara. <laughs> let me let me throw something in here, um, and and uh, uh, see if this fits into the mix. Um, I think that you know the bigger family out there is like a big family of siblings, and some of them are nice to us, and some of them may not be. And I think that all of the stuff that is going on terrestrially, where we are being given choice after choice after choice as to what kind of people we are going to be, that's going to determine the direction of which part of the family we align with. Oh, my God, who shows up, who resonates with us. Yes. Be careful who you ask for. Exactly. Wow. Steve? Steven? Unmuting. Sorry, I'm sorry. Sorry. Uh, look, I am familiar with the, the very broad spectrum of speculations that are part of the, the history of this going back all these years. They're interesting and they're fascinating, uh, but very much like science, where it's not uncommon to approach a particular unknown area of, of inquiry with 10, 20, 30 different theories out there, all trying to compete for the explanation. Uh, what happens with the scientific process, which is supposed to be conducted appropriately and not, not in any way interfered with by politics or religion or anything else, is that you go through a process in which you start eliminating all the theories that don't work until you get down to the one that does. And one of the reasons you do that is not simply because you get the right theory and you can advance further, but so that a whole bunch of people don't spend a huge amount of time pursuing essentially blind alleys. The truth embargoes uh, effect was this. It, it allowed speculation to thrive without resolution. And so we've got, it's fun to speculate. I'm not saying it's a bad thing. I'm simply saying we are, we are awash in speculation but the truth embargo, that lack of formal acknowledgement that allows complete and open uh, engagement and access to more information has prevented resolving these speculations. And so many people in the field have spent years going down blind alleys, into box canyons, stumbling around in the, in the, uh, the living room in the dark, stubbing their toe on the living room furniture. This is not the way you run science, and it's not the way you should run any kind of inquiry. And so first, yeah, well, we wait, wait, you and I agreed on hours ago that this wasn't science. It's all politics. It will rise or fall or no. die or live because of the politics to hell with the science. No, 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 no. You're, you're, I, I know I said that, but you've misconstrued the, the connection. No, this is politics. OK, but the science process is a little easier analogy to use. The political resolution is still a truth process. You are trying to get the right thing done based on the facts, all right? In other words, ET presence is, the fact that ETs are here is really not science. It's like 
saying some Japanese people have moved into the neighborhood. Where's the science there? Okay. So ETs are either here or they're not. And the denial of them being here is a political decision to deny that truth, a very, very simple truth, not some complex theory of quantum mechanics. And so I don't, don't, don't pull, don't draw back on that to conflate with this. I'm simply saying that the truth embargo has prevented us from knowing and eliminating lots of speculations, whether they be scientific or political or exopolitical, uh, about what's going on and what the ETs are here and why are they here. It's prevented that. And so we're awash in speculation, but we're not able to resolve these issues. And so they're wasting our time. They're wasting a whole lifetime because for national security purposes, we're going to acknowledge, not acknowledge this. We're not going to formally endorse this. In fact, we'll even undermine your efforts to find it out. So without disclosure, we're going to continue to waste time and money and resources. And that's not uh, certainly the way I want to proceed. And most people don't want to proceed there. In other words, Getting involved in the political resolution of this issue, which is what the government did, is pretty much the same as getting involved in the scientific resolution of some major theory. It's like – and other governments have done this in the past where they suddenly insert themselves and say, oh, no, 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 no. That theory, you can't go there. That's that's silly. You've got to use this theory, all right? And, of course, it's bogus, and it it screws everything up. So that's the analogy I'm I'm trying to make here. Uh, The – the disclosure event, the, the, the confirmation event, is more than just an act of truth. It is a confirmation, an affirmation. It is essentially a release. It's giving a release to all manner of people to be able to speak freely. It will give it them opens- permission. It will give them permission. It gives them. It gives them permission. Certainly. It also. It also opens the door for. Uh, uh, all manner of inquiry that's uh, not not here, uh, not not available now. For instance, when when Clinton sent Podesta uh, and and some others, but mostly Podesta, to see if he could pry some files out of the uh, Department of Defense. Now, if Clinton had somehow been effectuate disclosure, which he might have been able to do, but didn't happen. That confirmation happens. That goes out around the world. Then Clinton comes back to the DOD and says, hands over the files. They've got no choice. Hang on, so, hang on. We don't have a lot of time, so I want to get through a couple, three items here rather quickly. Yeah, sure. The, sure, one, sure. the one positive thing of the whole Trump experience, the Trump administration, is it illustrated as nothing has in my lifetime the extraordinary powers of the imperial presidency. And as he went further and further into his administration, he got better and better and better at using those levers of power. And at the very end, he used that, those levers to almost steal the damn country. And it's all the people around him that he appointed who are pointing fingers now and saying he did it. He was at the center. He told us what to do. We told him the truth and he would, et cetera, et cetera. So what we now know that I didn't know like five years ago, was if Trump had decided to disclose or any president, Biden tomorrow, he could do it. You know, Pentagon be damned. The Not point exactly. Is the po- no. Yes, in law, he can. 
in law. Uh, I, I, again, you said do it. Do it is do it, right? If he, it, can they do it or not do it? Forget about the law for a minute, all right? For the president, the president technically, any one of the presidents could have come forward and simply personally on their own said there is an extraterrestrial presence, okay? All right, then the president obviously would be challenged immediately from all sides. Prove it. Okay. How is the president going to prove it? Start handing out, you know, Stan Friedman's books to the to the reporters. No, no. He he's going to have. His, he calls up his NASA administrator, who's been sitting on this mountain of evidence that they're making public with no comment. He simply points to the internet and says, "There, there's your proof." Right. True. He also could call in, or she could call in, all the top people at the Pentagon, put them on the carpet in the in the, uh, the Oval Office and basically say, it, it's over. I want these files. I want the people to know this. If you don't have them in, in, in my office in, in 30 days, I'm firing every single one of you. Yes, they could have done that. But there's a reason they didn't, right? Because to do that would have been a massively disruptive event, would have caused all manner of hell and chaos, right? Uh, and that would have been taking place for most of the last 75 years during the middle of the, uh, the nuclear arms race, right, or whatever war was going on at the time. And so while on paper, right, theoretically, based on the laws and the Constitution, the president could have forced that out. And, and I've said that. I've said that Hillary Clinton was going to do that. If, if it came to that, she was going to call the Pentagon on the carpet and say, look, this is it. You're going to give it to me. But it still would have been very difficult without a whole hey, lot of popular hey, support. Steven. You're trapped in the Pentagon. The Pentagon I am? is not – yeah, you're trapped. I'm saying look to NASA. NASA's the Achilles heel in the cover It is up. one possibility, but the Pentagon's no, got the, the real data is the data is there. It just has to be officially authenticated by a credible source, and there's no more credible source in the country than the president of the United States. Let me, let me move on, okay? I'd like right. to make a comment on, the, on what – Yeah, go, go ahead, Barbara. Go ahead. Yeah. The simple thing for any president of the United States to do, and again, the bottom line is elections have consequences. It really matters who the president is, especially in 2025. Yeah. Okay. All right. You're so all, all any president needs to do is to simply, every president of the United States is the ultimate classification and classification authority, period. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yes, all Trump or any other president, Biden, whoever's president 2025, all they have to do is publicly declare and order the declassification of every single document that has anything to do with any of these top secret, uh, top secret deep, deep state machinations, deep state, deep state machinations. From JFK assassination to 9-11 to disclosure that we're talking about, the president of the United States can do it instantly. See, that's what we've learned from the Trump experience. And he's been riding that wave even now in Mar-a-Lago. Remember the 30 boxes of classified files that suddenly wound up in Mar-a-Lago? And he has the power solely to look at those boxes and say, I'm declassifying Everything in those boxes, go away, don't bother me. And you get yes, away with it yes. under the Constitution. And if you recall, he said, true or not, 
that he was shown the JFK assassination papers, the truth, he claimed, and that it was so shocking that it was his, Trump's opinion, it should never be made public. Mm. Mm. Okay, let me move on quickly. We've got about seven minutes left. Uh, next thing, Stephen. There's been this mm. huge free-for-all over the last week or two about the mysterious crash on the moon, which resulted in two craters. It was spotted an object coming in from deep space orbiting the sun, presumed to be a spent rocket stage from either SpaceX or the Chinese on March 4th, according to prediction in NORAD tracking, slammed into the backside of the moon near a crater called Hertzsprung and left two holes, two craters side by side, which was photographed uh, in June uh, a couple weeks ago by uh, NASA's Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter. The weird part is we photographed from orbit, NASA has, 47 impacts of other spacecraft on the moon, rockets, spacecraft, Europeans, whatever. None of them have created a double crater. The double crater is so mysterious, not the least of which it implies like a dumbbell formation as opposed to a long cylindrical rocket body with the heavy end, the engines being the end that makes the damage. So that's the first thing. The second mystery is, in the second crater, there is the remains of what looks like an intact rocket, complete with nose cones, fins, fairing, just lying there uh, in the sunlight, absolutely pristine as you please, even after a so-called impact at 5,000 miles per hour. Item number three, the size of the two craters that NASA gave out was 17.5 yards and 19.5 yards. And when you add them together and convert it to feet by multiplying by three, you get 111 feet for the total width of the two craters side by side overlapping each other. And 111 is part of the 11111 sequence, which translates mathematically to 19.5. So somebody sent us a message, and nobody on Earth is owning up. The military and the intel community all over the world are saying publicly, well, if it isn't the Chinese, who, of course, denied that it's theirs, and it's not Musk's, who denied with proof that it's not his, who did it? Nobody knows who did it. Nobody is fessing up. So I proposed last night that it's a signal from the ET faction out there, the guys with the boat, who basically did this to demonstrate that time is running out. Has Putin said if it's his? Nope. Mm-hmm. Nope. Nobody. And the intel community is all over this. And for them to publicly not know if it's China or Russia or whatever, is just not believable. Of course they would know. So I'm just wondering, if you wanted to demonstrate overwhelming force with a technology in physics that humans can't even begin to touch yet, and you wanted to do it in the Truman-like proposal where instead of nuking Japan, he had in front of him proposals to basically get Japanese observers on some island in the Pacific and light off an atomic weapon and show them the destructive power as a demonstration. Suppose this mystery crash on the moon, which is held 
face headlines now for almost two weeks. People are still talking about it, and it's being ginned up and hyped and all that, which, of course, makes me suspicious. It's got the right HD numbers. It's got the surviving object, which shouldn't be there. Suppose it was a demonstration of something as simple as a shield, which is impervious to both crashes, weapons, lasers, whatever, and somebody out there is basically sending a subliminal message, do not tug on Superman's cape. In other words, when we bring up the subject of extraterrestrials, they have a vote. Yeah, but they don't have rockets. Produce anything that looks superficially like something that would be recognizable, like a weapon, you know, like a, like a warhead. All right. For the military minded, you wind up not being able to use a warhead of any kind because it will not work. It simply will not. You know, it can't destroy the target if your technology on the other side is sufficiently advanced. Steve. Dick, um, I uh, am going to uh, be a crater moon crater impacting stuff to you and. I'm going to focus on what members of Congress are saying and developments uh, with respect to uh, more legal language and stuff. I I I, I got to stick in my I got to stay in my lane, Dick. Uh, you yeah. And so like yeah, we can't do everything, right? So uh, I'm always interested in your theories. They're always fascinating. But uh, my my area is a very boring uh, following of media coverage, Washington and trying to assess the prospects of actually getting a hearing uh, or getting more hearings on the ET issue uh, and anything beyond that. And, I, and I'm going to have a brain aneurysm, I'm telling you. I'm <laughs> 75. I could go at any minute. And so you're, you're, you're putting stuff in my head, and I'm going, oh, my God, I'm going to blow a fuse. So I'm going to let you handle that. Excellent. And uh, okay. if something, hey, we are if out something of time. breaks. We are out okay. of time. I want to thank my guests, Steve Bassett. Uh, Georgia Lambert and Barbara Honiger for a very impressive show. We must do this again as warrant as, as developments warrant. So until next Saturday, when Barbara will be back with a stunning show with Scott Walter and an incredible tour of ancient ancient Scotland. Remember, third star on the left. Good night, everybody, and have a good week. Good night. Good night, good night Barbara. Good night. I- I admire your work. Uh, I'm aware of it. You're a fierce activist. Congratulations. All right. I'm gone.